In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. We're doing a deep dive today using the scuba equipment that was hidden in our shoe and wristwatch. And to help us find our MacGuffin, we've got returning guest Lord, Chris Lord. Now, Chris, is James Bond a movie or series of movies that has been, will be, or should be remade? Oh, (laughs) that is a very complicated question. So I'm going to warn everyone right from the bat, this is my number one fandom. (laughs) <laughs> like you guys got a if you listen to Superman episode I was on you got a glimpse of how much I love Superman. Mm-hmm. Superman still falls below for me Batman, which still falls below James Bond. Huge James Bond fan. <laughs> Sam asks you have a Casino Royale poster on my wall. Daniel Craig constantly keeping an eye on me because that's the best James Bond movie. That is the best James Bond movie. Got it. Okay, and that is the only. Oh, see this. Okay, long. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that. <laughs> it's like long complicated um, answer. <laughs> I mean, the the obvious one is it has been remade. Yes. Sort of. Yes. So... Reboot, remake, to some Yeah. Extent. So there is the canonical reboot of Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. There's actually two other versions of Casino Royale that no one really counts. There was a made-for-TV movie version in the 50s. Starring was, who? I actually can never remember the person's name. I've never seen that version. It's like lost. But it is like a James Bond. Well, it's, so he's American. He's called Jimmy Bond. And it's, all, it's like a TV movie, so it's relatively short. But it's basically the plot of Casino Royale. So it's like Americans trying to remake Great British Bake Off. Like, they'll yes. take the plot, but they just don't get the essence. Right? Exactly. It becomes the mediocre American Bake Off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also a 1967... What else do you want? We got Paul Hollywood. <laughs> this is what you want, right? <laughs> I... I actually sat down and started watching The Great British Bake Off, and then I realized that it was really conflicting with my other life goal, which is to try and reduce the amount of sweets that I take in, so I had to stop. Uh, For me, The Great British Bake Off is something I can't watch alone anymore. Uh, (laughs) I have, like, friends that I sit and watch Great British Bake Off with, and we always make sure we are eating dinner while we watch. Yes. So we're good. That is a smart choice, otherwise you will... Go crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Postmates is dangerous for the fact that Great British Bake Off exists. (laughs) Or being, like, walking distance from any place that sells anything with sugar in it. Right, exactly. Stay away from anything. Cookies, ice cream, muffins. So why is Casino Royale, then, the best James Bond movie? So, for me, it's the best because it's just kind of objectively the best film Mm -hmm. that is also in the James Bond series. So I think it's the most accessible to anyone who's not necessarily a big fan. Um, I think it's just really well crafted. For me, it's like a near perfect movie. I think Daniel Craig has done the most with the role. I'm not necessarily saying he's the best. Obviously, a lot of people, myself included, have a soft spot for Sean Connery. Mm -hmm. Um, I also have a soft spot for Pierce Brosnan because he was my Bond as a kid, (laughs) uh, despite his less than stellar movies. Um, But I think Daniel Craig is really great in that role. I think he is reminiscent of the character Fleming originally wrote, but also with a bit more humanity, which is really important because Ian Fleming was kind of a monster notoriously. I mean, based on the character he wrote, I'm like, hey, look, this is the ideal man. Uh, Yeah, he basically hated anyone who wasn't him. Cool. (laughs) Fun. Monstrous human being. Great character he wrote. Decent books. Yeah. 
Um, so I mean, for me, Casino Royale, it's just it ha- it hits all the beats. It's got great action, fantastic score. Uh, the performances are amazing. I mean, it, it kind of helps introduce Ava Green to the broader cinematic mm-hmm. world. Same with Mads Mikkelsen, who are both fantastic. And I think it's just an incredibly well-crafted movie. And it, it sort of exists, it can kind of exist outside of James Bond as a franchise. Um, it also serves sort of as an origin for James Bond. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm not aware of like any of the other James Bond movies where that's the movie where he got his 00 certification. Exactly. Yeah. So when we originally meet certification, him. Ty- certification? Certification would, yeah. would require a certificate. <laughs> I bet you his he type, has a certificate. His, his, his title and pay bump. Yes. He just has a certificate with like a royal crest up at the top for like her majesty could service and then every other line of the damn thing is just redacted i was gonna say he had he doesn't have a certificate he has a pile of ashes that he has <laughs> framed on his uh his mantle exactly because it had to be destroyed <laughs> this tiny little urn yes <laughs> that contains his certificate of double status so before we get too far chris you've been a guest on the podcast before, I have, but for people yes. who haven't listened to the amazing superman episode mm-hmm. pause this go listen to that but just in case they don't because they're fools yes please introduce yourself and tell right. us a little bit about yourself yeah so uh my name is of course chris lord as it was established that fantastic intro uh <laughs> i have two other podcasts that i do one is called tim talk tim with two m's named after bruce tim who created batman the animated series and all the subsequent spinoffs so my friend they Cameron have a lot of I, bruce banter it's a whole thing Yes, exactly. We talk basically all the different Bruce's in the world, mm-hmm. fictional or real. <laughs> lots of conversations with the great boot. Bru- mm. Lots of conversations with the great Bruce Boxlighter thrown in there for good measure. I like that you think that anyone knows who that is. <laughs> I mean, we were talking Tron beforehand. <laughs> okay, is he in anything else other than Tron? I don't know who this man is. This is the first time I've oh, heard his he, name. He plays. Um, was it Alan in? Oh, Tron? the quote-unquote lead... No, because the lead guy's... Jeff Bridges yeah. in the original. But he's like the other so guy. Alan's but, his friend who yeah, doesn't who gets, get sucked in? No, who does get sucked in with There's them. There's someone else who gets sucked in? Yeah, it's the two of them and then the girl, too, right? Like, the, the girlfriend? Was or it? Or no, maybe the girlfriend is Alan's girlfriend, but she's into Jeff Bridges. I, I don't, don't I've remember. I've only seen the original Tron once, many years Me ago. Me too, but it... That's a movie I should do, just mental note, but yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I don't remember. He's also in... Tron Legacy as well. He's like the, the, the gravelly old man who keeps telling Sam Flynn he's got to get off his ass and go, you know, live in the real world or whatever. The one thing that I do know about Tron and the one thing I really respect about it is that it's really, really good at respecting it, like the story and the world that it's created. Because yeah. my understanding is that like the video game Tron or like the like story about it mm-hmm. is about that guy's kid. Oh, okay. And so then Tron Legacy is about whatever, Jeff Bridges' kid. And so it's kind of progressing the story forward with the world that it's previously created. Oh, I've forgotten that. That's awesome. Yeah. See, there's so, some good stuff in Tron. Yeah, that, that's why I got to yeah. go back and redo it. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, maybe we should start a Tron podcast. We can add it to our long list of podcasts. Three, four episodes, just a, <laughs> just a four episode deep dive miniseries podcast. Because yeah. they do miniseries pod. It can be our serial. That's exactly it. It'll be our limited run, limited <laughs> series just on Tron. We can call it Tronial. <laughs> talking Tron, talking Tron, exactly. Trocking Tron. <laughs> so I, I do the uh, the Bruce Tim podcast, which is about all the shows and movies in the DC animated universe. But we also cover major temple releases. We'll do all the Avengers movies. We've covered the less than stellar DC films from the last few years. We kind of covered it all. We did Mary Poppins. We do random stuff, y'all. Uh, and the other podcast I have is called Gay It Forward. Because uh, I self-describe as the hashtag worst gay. Because I basically had no 
exposure to gay culture until uh, more or less I moved to LA when I was 26, four years ago. Where are you originally from? Northern California. Huh. But like so, but not in San Francisco. I grew up like an hour south of San Francisco. Got so it. obviously, San Francisco is you know this uh, centerpiece of gay culture. But if you're in San Jose, Silicon Valley, there's not a lot of it there. And so I'm trying to do this like rapid catch up on gay culture. And my friend Jonathan and I decided, oh, what the hell? Let's make a podcast out of it. And so we'll go and watch movies, or we'll talk with other people in the LGBT community and kind of get their stories. And it's it's super super fun. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so I mean, I do this podcast, and I'm a big old nerd. So amazing. Yeah. So we're actually recording in your podcasting space right now. Yes. Yeah. In my so apartment here. What here is inspired? If uh, James Bond is your number one fandom, yes. Other than the Fantastic Casino Royale poster, what other tokens to James Bond do you currently have sitting around us? Okay, so just within Eyeline. There's actually not that much, but you might see over on my cabinet over there, there's the Lego Aston Martin DB5. I assumed that was a James Bond car. Yes. So I have wanted my entire life for Lego, my favorite toy. Mm-hmm. I have Legos everywhere for them to do James Bond. Can confirm. It, oh, there's, yeah, it's endless Legos here, but like that is an ideal property for Lego because there's so many things you can do with it. So many there's so many sets toys and cars and toys and vehicles and characters and so when the rumor came out they finally got the license, I was super excited, and I was hoping it was going to be a whole series. What Ultimate came down to, as of now, they did one set, and so it's a, I guess you would, that's probably about a 1 14th, one twelfth scale ASMR and DB5, built inside out of Legos, and has all the working gadgets on it. So it's got mm-hmm. the machine guns, it's got the ejector seat, the radar screen, the bulletproof awesome. shield. It's all there uh, in... My room, I then have all, like a handful of Ian Fleming novels, all of which I've read. The rest are back home. Uh, I have the... <laughs> I didn't realize this went that deep. Oh, it goes very, very deep. I have the, uh, the DVD box set. I have uh, four kind of novelty shirts, three of them from James Bonding, which is my favorite podcast about James <laughs> Bond. I would do a James Bond podcast if the perfect one if hadn't already been already. done. It already exists. I can't compete with those guys. I have met them, though. Uh, I Isn't got, the premise of that podcast that they watch a James Bond movie and then talk about it? Haven't they gone through them all at this point? So they're doing kind of seasons of them. So they did it once the first time through. Um, they started with Doctor No, and then they did Skyfall, which was the the, the most recent release of the time. time. And they worked their way in the middle. And then the second time around, I think they did actually do it. Oh no, they just kind of picked it at random. They're like, okay, you pick one this week. I'll pick the one next week, and they'll talk about it. They have guests come on. They've done. Bonus episodes. They've done a couple fantasy drafts. They went. They had a live show where they did a um, like a bracket to figure out what the best Bond movie was. Uh, I showed up to that wearing the terry cloth romper that Sean Connery wears <laughs> in Goldfinger. Uh, I'd actually met them before at another live taping wearing the same thing. So I am now the romper guy to them. Great. But I've met my podcast heroes. Uh, so I have that, and then I think my but my number one piece of Bond kind of memorabilia lore is my best friend Alec uh, picked up for me when he was out in the Caribbean a copy of Birds of the West Indies by James Bond. So that is the book that Ian Fleming used to get the title for his main character. And huh. I have a copy of it and uh, kind of a tradition which the new of us we like write notes up in the front of it. So like amongst my most prized possessions is a copy of that book with a note from my best friend in it. I mean, who's also a huge amazing. James Bond fan. I would so. assume so if he knew that piece of obscure knowledge. Oh, yeah. Like, he... Uh, 
He his like photo in my phone is a picture of Roger Moore from Octopus, and he's dressed up like a clown. <laughs> and uh, my photo in his phone is also the same as my profile photo on social media, which is a photo of Mrs. Bell, who's this really obscure character from Live and Let Die. There's a whole airplane chase sequence with her. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> but it, the cuts go so so deep with me. So I apologize in advance to you and everyone else who listens to this. <laughs> so. Clearly, this is a deep fandom, but like, what was your first experience with James Bond? So, my first experience with James Bond, I cannot remember because it was in the delivery room. My dad was watching a James Bond movie Little, that's... while I was being born. My mom made him turn it off. Uh, wow. he, he does not remember which one it is. Ah. I like to pretend it was maybe like Goldfinger, which is one of the best ones. Mm-hmm. It was probably like A Few Eyes Only, like one of the lesser kind of boring Roger Moore films. <laughs> but because he doesn't know, I can say whatever I want. Really yeah, I that. mean... It's your, it's your head cannon. Exactly. It's my head cannon of my own life. Yeah. So I, I don't remember the first time I watched one as a kid, but I watched them all the time as a kid. Before mm-hmm. we ever owned them on VHS, you know, we would go down to Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, wherever, and just rent them. And I always had my favorites, like The Spy Who Loved Me I Loved, because the Lotus turns into a submarine. <laughs> um, the first one I saw in theaters was Tomorrow Never Dies. Mm-hmm. And then I've seen every subsequent one in theaters since then. The first midnight movie I ever went to was Casino Royale. Ooh, good one. And I had to drive like about 40 minutes away from where I lived because I was the only theater at the time doing a midnight showing because they weren't a big deal. Like those were kind of uncommon in 2006. I think the first midnight screening I went to was Spider-Man 3. Ooh, okay. I mean, at the time, must have been a very exciting choice. In, yes. hi- in hindsight, maybe less so. It was either that or one of the Iron Man movies. Okay, yeah. Because I was definitely in college. I don't know. I don't remember. I, you know what? You get to headcan in your own life, yeah. right? You get to say it's Iron Man 1 if you want to. My the thing I remember is that I won some sort of contest when I was in college and got a gift card to go see a movie, and the gift card was Spider-Man Three themed. I don't know <laughs> if it was the movie had already come out or what, but that was what it was, and I know I used that card, mm-hmm. so that's why I think it. That's why it's tied to that movie, but I think I used it to pay for one of the two Iron Men. Okay. What, uh, was the character on the card just a picture of Topher no, Grace? No, it was a, a holographic card where it was a Spider-Man suit, and then you would turn it, and it would turn into the black Spider-Man suit. It's like one of those things where like you turn it, and so it looks cool. like a different That's thing. actually really, really cool. It was a really cool gift card. Yeah. I was really happy about it. Do you still have it? No. Oh. <laughs> time. It was in Colorado. Who even knows? <laughs> All things lost of time eventually. So the first James Bond, well, my first experience with James Bond is playing Goldeneye on the N64. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember playing that when I was in like fourth or fifth grade. We go over to Josh Offenhart's house <laughs> and we just sit and play that game and just over and over and over again. I, I remember being okay at it at the time. Mm-hmm. I've since gone back and played it again and been awful. Well, because it's using an N64 controller, which to this day I think is the worst controller ever created and here's the for thing. a console. I love the N64 controller. I've always loved really? the N64. I really like the N64 was really the only TV game console I owned. Okay. Until no, it's really the only TV okay, game console yeah. I've ever owned. It's a good. One. So that's the the controller that I know. Yeah. So like that's the one that's like comfortable in my hand, and that like so whenever I go to try <laughs> to play like a PlayStation or an Xbox. And I'm like, why are there two joysticks? Where's the third handle? I don't. That's that everything is wrong. <laughs> why? Why is this more? Why isn't this also built for lefties? Oh, that's right. Yeah, because it would have been a good one for mm-hmm. lefties. Because because no matter what, your dominant or yeah. less dominant hand could. And I feel like that controller was great for basically anything but a first person shooter. Which is why I'm terrible at first person shooters. Right. Yeah. Because it, it it does not work well because you really need to move and look. Whereas yeah. you're playing like Mario, for example, like the. 
Unless you're playing Mario 64. Yeah. Which is essentially a Mario first-person shooter. No, I'm shaking my head. (laughs) (laughs) Like that, yeah. I mean, that, but that GoldenEye game, though, was amazing. I think for a lot of people, that's a, a hallmark moment. In their connection with James Bond, I think it was a lot of people's first exposure too. Oh yeah, um, and it's—I mean, I've gone back and played it a little bit here and there. It is a really, really fun game. Actually, not not think about it. I had a dream the other night that I was playing a remade version of it, which exists. Yeah, they did a, a re-release with of it, less blocky animation. Yeah, so it was it was a modern animation, and it was a full-on rebuilt game, completely new engine, and it was during the Daniel Craig era. So it's him as Bond on a Goldeneye mission. The problem with it is that it's kind of just a generic game with eh. some references to it. Like, mm-hmm. the maps are similar-ish, the levels are similar-ish, but it's not like they basically just reskinned it. It's like playing, say, um, like the anniversary versions of Halo, which are the exact same game, but just with a new graphics on it. Mm-hmm. It was a completely different game, and it just it lost some of its charm in the process. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It just occurs to me that I also have, like... I own Goldeneye, but I own it because I took my N64 with me to college, mm-hmm. and we just like had it in the RA room, and we were just pl- like but play- playing uh, Super Smash Brothers or yeah. Mario Kart or whatever, which were games that I owned. And at some point over the course of the year, when I was moving out, I was like, I was getting all my games back together, and I was like, when did Goldeneye get here? Right. <laughs> and it, like everyone had left and moved out because I was an RA, so I was like the last one there, and it yeah. was, didn't belong to any of the other RAs. Oh my god! So like, you're just all like- right, well. I guess I own Goldeneye now. Keeping this. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, someone yeah. just like brought an extra and just left it. I'm like, this is like a $25 it, thing. This is great. It was your gift for having brought the N64 to the building exactly, and which, shared it with everyone. I mean, there were certainly people who played it more that year than me. Yeah. <laughs> but the first movie I ever saw was Gold, uh, not Goldeneye, was Casino Royale. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, I saw it in theaters, and that was the first James Bond movie I ever saw. I saw, oh my God. so I've seen all the Daniel Craig movies. Yeah, on a plane one time, I was like, "Oh, they have James Bond movies. What's the one that I've heard of? Oh, I've heard of Goldfinger. I'll mm-hmm. I'll watch Goldfinger." Yeah, and, I, and so I watched that, and then, so for this episode, I was like, "So, what's the one James Bond movie you want to kind of like fit this around?" Mm-hmm. And you'd recommended From Russia with Love. Yes. So that is now the other James Bond movie that I've seen. Okay, so I've seen I mean, all Daniel Craig, and then those two. So that's a pretty good sampling. Mm-hmm. So I have a an approach to take people who have never seen James Bond. You came very close to hitting it. I always say that if you've never seen a Bond movie, you start with Casino Royale because it's a good entry port, objectively the best. Yep. You then watch Goldfinger, because it's the most James Bond movie ever made. It's, it's very James it's Bond. It's very James Bond. It sets the formula for every subsequent film, pretty much, that point on. I said then the third one people should watch is, it's a toss-up, depending on your taste, but I say either Moonraker okay. or Die Another Day, because that's basically the worst and most <laughs> ridiculous they can possibly be. And within those you know, approximate so once three you've films... Made it, so <laughs> once you're riding high on the first two, you just barrel past the worst one, and then you're like, okay, I'm into this now. Yeah, well, you know, I feel like that will give you a sense of what that franchise is like, because it is this kind gotcha. of unique franchise. I mean, there are other properties that have lasted... You know, about as long. I mean, Star Trek is just a few years younger in terms mm-hmm. of a, a franchise than James Bond. Doctor Who's been around for, I think, equally as long, I want to say. I think that was also 62 was the first Doctor Who. I'm not sure. But, you know, there are only so many huge properties that have existed as long. And so Bond's amazing because you get to watch the evolution of film, basically, mm-hmm. as you go through it. You get to watch how the world changes, too. You get to watch the franchise try and 
catch up with modern times often stumble their way yes. doing it. But, you know, and with it has come this massive ebbs and flows in terms of quality. And oftentimes what is happening is they'll like have a, they'll really hit the formula to do a great one. The next one is garbage. And then they'll do something completely different than the one after that. And it'll come right back up on top again. It's this mm-hmm. weird kind of pattern they go through. But you, so you have seen a pretty good sampling of okay, them. Okay, cool. So if Goldfinger is kind of like the most James Bond movie that ever James de Bond. Yes. Uh, <laughs> What are the what are the essential components for a James Bond movie? So, you know, based on Goldfinger, what you pretty much always have is you have some sort of villainous plot that has pretty high stakes in some level, whether it's actual world destruction or destruction on some sort of massive level. You have some crazy Machiavellian villain. Mm-hmm. You have a henchman. Um, oftentimes, the henchman will outlive the main villain and come back in like the final moment to try and kill Bond and then get dispatched then. You have the primary Bond girl, at least one, sometimes two secondary Bond girls. The secondary Bond girl... That's how I cast, yes. Exactly. Perfect, perfect. Uh, <laughs> the secondary Bond girl is oftentimes killed. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that in like Skyfall, for example. Yeah. They kind of go along with that method. Uh, uh, that also happened in... That also happens in Casino Royale. It does, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty tried and true formula. You then have what we'll call like... It does not happen in From Russia With Love. No, it doesn't, which makes this one kind of different. Because From Russia With Love is kind of breaks that formula. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do From Russia With Love is it is kind of unique in some ways in the Bond franchise because it's the most Cold War focused of the lot, basically. Yes. Um, it is really kind of all about playing in this this massive kind of boys club chess game that's going on more or less between Western Secret Service and the Russians. Mm-hmm. And... When they were making the franchise, they deliberately avoided having the Russians be the villain because they didn't want to basically exclude themselves from being able to be shown in Russia. That's why it's always Spectre. Right. Instead, whereas... And that happens in From Russia With Love. Well, it was also interesting that even in the end credits, because From Russia With Love is also a franchise builder. It's setting up this evil agency of Spectre. I mean, what's the name of the, the big bad? Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Yes, okay. So Blofeld... We never see his face in From Russia With Love. We don't... Yeah. He's not even credited, so we don't know what he looks like. Yes. That wouldn't work today, obviously. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was like, ooh, we don't know who it is. So we, all we hear is his silky voice, and we know that he's Spectre. Yeah. So for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to call him Silk Spectre. Uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. I thought of the joke, and I was like, well, I'm going to have to say no, this. No, you got to go with it. you got to run with it. <laughs> but in all seriousness, so like we take... I know you said From Russia With Love, but I'm going to use Casino Royale yeah. also. Because that's all I've got. Like, Casino Royale and From Russia With Love are the two Bond movies, like, both as Bond movies kind of function as a first Bond movie because they set up, here's where we're going. Here's what else is happening from now on. Yeah, I mean, so Dr. No is the first film, and Spectre is part of that. Okay. um, Which they... That's not part of the book. They added that, if I recall. Yes, it's not part of the book. They add that onto the movie to kind of set up Spectre as the, the overarching villain across the whole series. Um, but that's really more about Dr. No's specific plans, mm-hmm. and they just mention Spectre. But yeah, we see, Blof- see Blofeld for the first time in this one, and like you said, we don't see his face. We just see him, and he's got the, the white I um, literally texted cat. my friend, he's got the cat! He's got the villain cat! Yeah, right? Which, and part of the challenge with doing Blofeld, and this was a, an issue with Spectre, is we've had Dr. Evil at this point. Right. You know, and Dr. Evil is this fantastic send-up of that character. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to go back and do that again in earnestness. 
And the problem is that Spectre completely botched it when they, when they did it. They tried real hard. <laughs> they, they tried. I, I maintain that about the first half that movie is pretty solid, and then it, it dips off. And honestly, off. there are a lot of things about that movie that I thought were really fun. I thought casting Dave Bautista as the Enforcer was good casting. Yeah, he's, I he he's a, a really good, good henchman, yeah. The car chase was fun. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous, it makes no sense, but it's fun. Yeah. And even because one of the habits they've gotten in with a lot of the James Bond movies is they open with a big action sequence yeah. before leading into like the actual plot. It's just, hey, here's a cool thing he did. Okay, now let's get into it. Yeah. And, and that's a big staple of Bond 2 that was really, that was kind of started off in From Rush With Love. There is a cold open here. Mm-hmm. Um, but starting with Goldfinger, the cold open is usually Bond on some other mission, oftentimes some unrelated mission. And then. They do the title sequence, then goes to the main movie. As the films progressed, eventually they got a little more efficient with their storytelling, and now often the the cold open ties in in some capacity. Yes, although this cold open was a was a bait and switch. Exactly. Yeah. So in From Russia with Love, it's blonde guy, Red Grant. Sure. AKA Robert Shaw. His name is Red Grant, and he's that blonde. Yeah, I know. It's a weird. It's a weird naming choice. I mean, I get that he's supposed to be like Russian. Yeah. So well, like, I mean. Um, he's actually, wait, I'm trying to remember how this works. Cause his name's Donald Grant. So I think he's actually American. Robert Shaw was American, right? Mm. I think so. The internet would tell us, but that seems like work. That, I know it's not worth going into. Like, I'm now questioning myself, but that character, I don't think is actually Russian cause he's part of Spectre and Spectre is this global organization right. that pulls from everywhere. I, I got that he was a part of Spectre. I thought he was still Russian. Well, no, he. Well, I got that he was part of Spectre because Spectre was trying to get the, the MacGuffin device, yes. the 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 Russian code breaker, the Lecter machine, Lecter. Thank you. Yes, kept wanting to call it like Clipter. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> like trying to trying to get that for whatever reason in my head, I just like kind of established him as Russian. Yeah. Because then when he's because he's really menacing and creepy the whole time. Like mm-hmm. he does a really good job until he starts talking. Yeah, and that's part of the problem is when he's doing his English voice, he's clearly dubbed in a really haphazard way. Is that what it is? Because yeah. every single time it's like something, something, something. Old man. Old, old man. Yeah. I'm like, I, and I kind of thought that that was like a weird, like, okay, he's clearly doing a fake British accent. Yeah. And, but part of the reason why I thought he was Russian even more was when they get to the scene where they're ordering dinner mm-hmm. and uh, Bond says, I would like to order this. And for the lady, she'll have the same. Okay, uh, and then the guy goes, uh, "Yeah, me too." Because I just assumed it was because he couldn't read English. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. I mean, that that's a good read on that. I, um, I think it's supposed to be that he just basically isn't cultured. Because part of the right. thing too is that he orders red wine with fish, which right. God forbid. Uh, of course. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're English, that's an abomination. Yeah, so. I mean, the the theory falls apart because when he actually like has a gun on Bond, you think he would just then revert to his natural accent, but he still kind of had like a. He didn't really have, like, a British accent. Yeah, that's why I can't remember... I'm having trouble remembering where Robert Shaw is from, because I don't think he's English. I believe that he's American. I think he is. I mean, is. it makes sense, because both... It's playing the British Secret Service and the American... I mean, he's Spectre again, but... Yeah. I just trying to get the thing. Yeah, well, because Robert Shaw's other big movies are Jaws. He's Quint in Jaws. Sure. And then he... Have you not seen Jaws? No. What? I know, I know, I'm sorry. You probably get that all the time. There's... I, there's a lot of movies I should probably see, but like up until a couple of years ago, I hadn't seen ET or a bunch of stuff. Okay. I had like some friends who did movie nights and movies Sam hasn't seen, and yeah. have slowly been catching me up. I would definitely watch Jaws. It holds up. So everyone says it, it is legitimately a masterpiece. Uh, but so his big roles are that, and then also he's in the Sting. He's the villain. Oh, 
I have that on DVD, but I've never watched it. Oh, it's also a masterpiece. Yeah. It's so, it's so good. supposed to be really, really good, but I have a friend who's like, oh, we have to watch this movie together because I know the other story because I worked for blah, 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 and I'm like, okay, so let's watch it, and then we keep forgetting. Of course. As it always happens. Keep watching Great British Bake Off instead. I mean, hey, you know what? If it's a good show, it's a good show. It's just so calming and relaxing in an otherwise chaotic world. Yeah, no, just the small little glimmer of hope. (laughs) That's all we have. Uh, But anyway, what were we talking about? Some sort of shoot-em-up guy? Uh, Well, I mean, yeah, Red Grant. So he's the, um, yeah, like the, in this movie, it's weird because he neither really fits the role of the henchman nor of the main villain. He, He occupies the most screen time and he has the most involvement but essentially he's a henchman right but what i w- what i'd originally been leading to is that there's the the bait and switch of watching him oh, track right, yes. down bond and then he kills bond and we're like good jo- good job sir you did the thing and yeah. then they take a terrible looking mask off of the guy who was apparently bond it looks nothing like sean connery nothing not even a closely similar build but i think the presumption is that the mask he was wearing was a sean connery mask yes so which and then that's technology that they just never use again. Never ever use again. Yeah. Which is it's Avengers level technology. Right. Yeah. Real good. Never used again. Never used again. Yeah. I think their goal there was basically one to bring Bond up to the front of the movie because otherwise it takes him a while to appear. Right. I um, mean, I think too just to have that like a surprise moment of like what like Bond's dead. Where are we gonna go with this? And mm-hmm. it's like oh no, it's we're just we're just teasing. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have the, the moment where it's like the, the scope and Bond shoots down the scope. Red blood fills the screen. What's, yeah. that, what's that actual thing called? It's called the gun barrel sequence. It is the gun barrel so sequence. The, I, so what doesn't really quite make sense is it's Bond shooting at somebody else. That other person, we basically have the point of view of the gun barrel on them. Right. What doesn't make sense then is why blood would flow like Well, presumably over he the gun shoots barrel. them in the head and then they bleed down the, in front of the gun barrel. Yeah, I mean, that kind of would make sense. So it never had, it didn't have an origin until Casino Royale. And then they like wrote it into the opening sequence as where to where it comes from. Where he literally does that. And I, it's great. In Casino Royale, it's amazing. It's uh, the opening, the cold opening of Casino Royale is one of the best of all time. So good. Uh, but what I was going to say is I'm so jaded and used to like super highly trained, really well done things that they yeah. have the gun barrel thing and <clears throat> they have James Bond kind of turn and take the shot and he literally hops, his arm comes all the way around and then he shoots. And yeah. I was like, oh, he's dead. Also, that's not even Sean Connery. I, of course it's not. It's a stuntman, yeah. I think it wasn't until Thunderball he actually was in the gun barrel sequence. Deigned to be a part of the thing where his actual face wouldn't be seen. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, the first time we ever see James Bond, technically... In any of the major James Bond films, it's not even Sean Connery. And I am embarrassed to say I've forgotten the name of that actor. That's yeah. that man. Again, the internet would have it, but I know. so far but away. I, but I am a self-proclaimed expert on these things. Yeah, but I so. mean, look, names on their own are hard. I'm more impressed if you can remember like the plot points and the details for that. Like, I think the story for this is more important. And mm-hmm. of, remembering the name of that particular actor, I think, is just as important as remembering the name of the costume designer very important yeah but i can't remember all of it it's impossible to know all of it because i mean this is a movie all about styles like the production design and the fact that they have a whole sequence on a train is amazing yeah we need more train sequences we do no i mean i always love a good train fight um that's popped up in a few other bond films Mm -hmm. recently in specter in fact um no like the train fight there is good and and one of the reasons i like this one so much is that it is a very different plot right it's like the 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 villain's aspirations are not one of world domination or world destruction or anything super super high 
they're basically just fucking with. Do you swear? We swear on your yeah, podcast. Yeah, okay. Don't remember. Uh, you know, it's basically Spectre is just fucking with the British and the Russians. Mm-hmm. Like they they want to get their hands on the Lecter machine, basically so they can turn around and sell it back to the Russians. Maybe they'll sell it to the English. Doesn't really matter. A bonus goal is to kill Bond, but the stakes aren't necessarily super high. But I still find that there's this really fantastic undercurrent of menace just because Red Grant is always lurking in the background. Right. But getting back to the original original point was yeah. what other pieces so there's the women there's the kind of the overarching villain mm-hmm. what other things are necessary for a james bond movie to make it a james bond movie so a lot of the other hallmarks would be i mean he's constantly in a suit in a fantastic suit um pierce brosnan's era it was brioni now it's tom ford great suits uh i mean the cars and the gadgets are the other really big thing right so um in this movie we're introduced to one of the most famous james bond gadgets which is the briefcase yeah so it's, you know, the, the whole thing the, is... The booby trap briefcase. Exactly. It's got the booby trap built into it. It's got the knife that comes out of it. It's mm-hmm. got all these other little things. Um, it is referenced in Goldfinger, but it really never makes an appearance again. But this was kind of the first major gadget. And along with that is also the first time that uh, the actor, Desmond Llewellyn, played Q. So, I mean, Q, along with M and Moneypenny, are these kind of staple characters that are in almost every single Bond film. And... Uh, that character, Major Boothroyd slash Q, is played by a different guy in Dr. No. This is Desmond Llewellyn's first appearance. He would then appear in almost every single Bond film up through The World Is Not Enough, which was the 19th film. Wow. So of any actor, he has appeared in the most Bond films. And so like, he in him in himself is kind of a staple of that whole thing. And he's kind of then probably what ties the universe together. Well, but also there's that theory of the it's different people with the same designation of D- yeah. James Bond 007. Exactly. But and that, so it's a, it's an interesting idea and it would help kind of explain why this character seemingly just continues to live for right. 50 odd years. It doesn't actually work though, because there are multiple points over the course of the franchise where it's acknowledged that a different actor is still playing the same canonical of character. Course. The only thing that's like a hint that it's been someone else is when, was the name of the guy who replaced uh, Sean Connery originally? George Lazenby. George Lazenby says, "Well, this would you never this never would have happened to the other guy." Yeah, which is just like this weird fourth wall breaking meta joke that's right doesn't work. And the only reason it's in the movie is because he kept saying it during the course of filming. Like, well, you never would have told the other guy to do that. Yeah, and like literally, it's just something George Lazenby said. I actually didn't know that. That's a I learned it trivia. in a podcast on George Lazenby. Wait, what podcast on George Lazenby? Uh, so there's a podcast called The Dollop. Okay. They take oh, I've heard of this. stories yeah. from American history and like ridiculous stories from American history. But yeah. Sometimes they'll flip it. And so they have a whole episode where they do a deep dive on here is George Lazenby's life. Oh, my God. He has a super interesting life. Yeah. Um, there is a great documentary called Becoming Bond on Hulu. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's, you know. Interviews with him and a whole bunch of people around his life that were involved in his movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, Which is supposed to be not bad. It's one of my favorites. It's actually really good. I almost chose it. It was a toss-up between that and From Rush With Love, and I'll explain why I ultimately chose From Rush With Love at a certain point. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's a great documentary. Also, they do recreations of parts of his life because the idea is that he's telling the story, and he is a fantastical storyteller. Like, whenever he's telling a story, they're always super entertaining Be sense that maybe it's not 100% the truth. Mm-hmm. And so they play with that in almost, almost a kind of drunk history-esque kind of way That's where awesome. the recreations have this sort of meta facade to them where you can they kind of play off the potentially untrustworthy nature of the narrator. 
And uh, it's really good. He's an interesting guy. He's also one of two Bonds I've ever actually seen in person. Ooh, neat. Yes. I mean, the obvious next follow-up question is, who was the other one? Well, Timothy Dalton. I, yeah. I just happened to see him at the Trader Joe's down the street once. Yeah. Uh, did you say, good job in Doom Patrol? I, it was before Doom Patrol had come out. Oh. It was right around the time that he was cast in Doom Patrol. Got it. Okay. Um, but he is fantastic in Doom Patrol. He is. And I, he is an underappreciated Bond. So. Huh. Uh, but... No, I lost my train of thought. I I mean, gonna I, I'm, I'm going to be real challenged for you oh, because I will go on these lengthy tangents about Bond. Wait, it's okay. So we were talking about oh but, the code name thing. We were initially talking we were, about the code but, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the part of the reason I'm assuming you picked From Russia with Love is because it's a Sean Connery James Bond movie. Yeah. So the the way I always think about remakes, and you and I have talked about this before, is that a, a great movie to choose to remake is one where. It's a great idea, but the execution maybe isn't quite there. And On Her Majesty's Secret Service closely follows that line. Mm -hmm. There are some imperfect elements to the execution, but overall, that is actually a really, really well-made movie, and I think one of the best Bonds. And I think George Lazenby is the most underappreciated Bond. I think he would have had a really good run as that character if he hadn't been an idiot and walked away from the franchise. Yeah. Everyone assumes he got fired. He walked away. That was all on him. Yeah. Nope. I heard the podcast. Yeah. Um, Of course. Yeah. Why (laughs) have I done this to you? You know these things. Um, That's the dollop. The dollop. Also a podcast. (laughs) Sponsored by The Dollop. So I, I almost chose that movie because I think that is a story that I would like to see retold at some point. Um, going into Spectre, there was a lot of speculation that that movie might end up being a pseudo-remake mm-hmm. of On Her Majesty's Service. There are elements in there. One of the tip-offs was that the teaser trailer for Spectre uses the musical motif from oh, interesting. On Her Majesty's Service, one of the best Bond themes. There are some pieces in there, but overall it's not quite there. Um, and so that is a movie that I actually would kind of like to see redone in the main Bond continuity. Um, but the reason I chose From Rush With Love is I was kind of approaching this of what's the Bond film that they would never make? Ah, okay. So the reason I chose this one, and I, I assume we can start getting into sure, the, 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 the real meat of it, of it here. The reason I chose this one is that this is the one I would want to see remade, more or less, but actually set in the 60s. Oh, okay. So knowing I how... I did not do that. Well, that's fine. We, we, we can play with that, too. I mean, we can we can look at it from different angles. And I, also, the casting still works. It's just, I I went multi-ethnic. No, that's fine. Or, and that, like, and everybody. That's, yeah, and I think that's the because way to go. it's so white. It is very, very white. And, and setting in the 60s challenges that, but I think then playing with that and mm-hmm. like finding a way to make it work is interesting. But um, And I did follow your rules. I was going to tell you that's what I was thinking, but I know your rules no, no, are no, don't fine. talk ahead of time. Oh, no, no. My rule is don't cast ahead of time but if, oh okay but if like you're leading towards your own cast but like i want to set it this time i want to do this i want to do that that's all fair game oh, okay this is pure plot because the plot has nothing to do with who you cast right yes um yeah so the, with the specific name of the person you cast I yes say. But, so the, the idea would be to actually do a bond film in the modern era set in the 60s again okay because i think you know bond is kind of constantly reinventing itself in the contemporary time period. And that's always an interesting conversation is how do you do a new modern bond? But that's conversations happening all the time. I thought it more interesting to say, well, let's say we're going to make a 1960s bond film in the modern era with modern sensibilities. How do you make that happen? Cause one of the, the most valid criticisms of the franchise is that especially early films are really bad about racial politics, gender politics, um, yeah, you know, in regards to Goldfinger, queer politics. And, but those are also staples of that remember. time period. So then how do you factor them in? So that's why I chose this one. 
cool specifically because it's it's very cold war and they're yes. more very very of that time exactly so I, you want to do another cold war bond movie yes so the idea which is makes sense because Russia's very much a villain again i know look how things come full circle isn't it great just for you yeah it's just thank god that happened if only for me yeah uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's the most Cold War. It's There's not really a lot of other Bond films quite like this in that regard. So I think that'd be an interesting exercise. And how do you do that in a modern context? I like that. I think that's a good idea. And I think one of the other things that we have to deal with, and we've dealt with this in some of the other movies uh, that I've talked about, like something like The Matrix or mm-hmm. whatever, where part of the mystique of the movie is it's the first one that did this idea. Yeah. And James Bond is one of the first if not the first like action movie yeah i mean it was it really helped launch that idea of like the the action blockbuster right i mean the action movies before this are movies like the ten commandments which probably was listed as an action movie but by modern standards is by no means an action movie yeah and even the early bond films by modern standards are barely action movies yeah so how do we turn around and take something like james bond in a world in a post-marvel post-Atomic Blonde, post-the-spy-who-dumped-me world. Yeah. And I think that's kind of one of the fun things about going back to the past is it's honestly really hard to write a spy story in the modern context because the nature of what we perceive as espionage has changed. A lot of it is now done in this very abstract kind of digital sense, right? It's all done through kind of surveillance, but like electronic surveillance. Yeah, I agree. Edward Snowden is a very good cue. Hmm? Nothing. Who? Edward Snowden. <laughs> <laughs> the modern cue. You know, but and I thought Skyfall did a really good job of acknowledging sort of um, why it makes sense that Bond is still old-fashioned in a modern world. The problem is then sure. it's, it's hard to then follow that up, and they were challenged with Spectre. Um, That's why I thought Skyfall was the last Bond movie, and Spectre snuck up on me. Like, yeah. I didn't know Spectre was happening until it was out. And then I was like, yeah. wait, 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 there's a fourth one? I, th- I thought that they just did the trilogy and called it. Yeah, I and mean... We're going to move on and do another Bond at some point. Th- there's like a whole separate conversation of when does this franchise stop? Right. Um, at what point does it stop maintaining its relevance? At what point does it really start to feel stale? The problem, of course, being is those questions were relevant until Skyfall kind of answered them and then retorted. Maybe like, this is why we're still relevant. Right. And then now they're having a hard time keeping up with their own relevance once again. I mean, the other problem is that in the same thing as something like Star Trek or Doctor Who, both Star Trek and Doctor Who already have within them kind of the reinvention built in. And honestly, so does Bond by recasting it. Yeah. Let's, hey, let's go again. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, but it reaches a point where even reinventing the character isn't enough sometimes. And I think that's kind of the problem with how people see it. Like, that, it's just a, it's kind of like a marketing idea. Like, there's some brands yeah. that just go away. Mm-hmm. That's why the Oldsmobile is no longer around. Very true. It also helped that the word old was in it. Yeah. And, like, literally, <laughs> when Oldsmobile was being rebranded, like, uh, GM rebranded it as not your father's car because yeah. everyone thought of it as the car that, like, my grandfather drove. Exactly. So, like, no, no, we're not your father's car. And then it didn't work. It didn't work, yeah. Buick is still trying to do that exact same thing again. Which is probably a good indicator that Buick is dying. Although Buick apparently is super popular in China. Why? I don't know, but it just is. It like it legitimately is. Like that <sighs> is one of their biggest markets. Like China is keeping Buick alive. That's wild. I know, it's so bizarre, right? I, I mean, I'm sure there's some like 
instance where they paid someone who's super duper famous and it's like, yeah. oh, well, the super duper famous person had it. Yeah. I also need my Beats by Dre. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Buick. The Beats by Dre of the automotive industry. In China. <laughs> In China exclusively. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So, all right. So then we're talking about kind of the important things that make something a Bond movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take do a little tangent because that's what we're doing today. Yeah. What are some movies that have come out recently that are Bond movies but aren't really Bond movies? Like I listed like something like Atomic Bond or whatever. Yeah. Is that a Bond movie? I mean, <sighs> obviously an important concept, uh, something for to be a Bond movie, it needs to have James Bond in it. But yeah. in structure, is there something that else that's come out recently that kind of fits the structure? Like someone else doing, well, here's my take on. I mean, not... <sighs> Not really. What we get is send-ups. Okay. Right? So we get Austin Powers. There's Johnny English. Um, I mean, those Paul feel more Feig's like parodies. Spy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're send-ups. They're parodies. Although um, Spy is fantastic. I actually don't like Spy. Interesting. I also am not the biggest Paul Feig fan in general. Mm. Um, He's I, hit and miss for me, but I really, really like Spy. See, I, I think part, part of it is me being such a huge James Bond fan. I didn't. Because ah. it, it starts off definitely going down that path. Like, it even has a James Bond-style title sequence. Right. And I'm like, okay, like I get what they're going for here. They're doing a James Bond send-up. And then it didn't follow through on that. I think it's part of the reason I didn't love it. Fair. Um, also, I, I mean, I'm probably the only person who will ever say this. I actually don't think Paul Feig is that good at writing women. Hmm. I think... Across the board, the most memorable characters in almost all of his movies are the male characters. I mean, that's probably true. That's why I've been trying really, really hard over the past, this year specifically, like, if it's a female lead, I want a female writer. Yeah. Obviously not that men can't write women, but like... No, like, look at David D. Kelly. He's yeah, fucking fantastic like, at writing women. There's plenty of really talented women who yeah. could do just as well, if not better. Yeah. Like, he puts women front and center, but I don't think he actually knows how to write them particularly well. Yeah. But I mean, that's a whole separate tangent, but... Fair. You know, and then you get movies like the Bourne films, which are definitely their own yeah. distinct thing. And by the time we got to Casino Royale, we saw that franchise borrowing from Bourne. Um, we get the Mission Impossible movies, which again are their own kind of fun thing. The Mission Impossible movies often feel kind of more like um, capers, yeah, to me. And they, you know, a lot of their stuff involves like they're kind of heist movies on some mm-hmm. level, like they're espionage heist films. I mean, honestly, the Bourne movies certainly kind of follow like action and a lot of story. The thing that, and I could certainly see why they would be the American James Bond. Mm -hmm. The thing that doesn't work is that they have this whole other amnesia subplot of kind of figuring out who he was that just, if there's one thing that James Bond is, it's extremely confident in knowing exactly who he is. Yeah. And so we need kind of like that self-assured, if there's one person that's just the epitome of confidence in a character, it's James Bond. Yeah. So if you, Look at, I mean, and also Archer, but that's oh yeah, I mean, but I mean, that that's the parody of exactly. It. Archer's in the parody, like um, kind of a, a movie that is doing its own version of Bond. Actually, is Catch Me If You Can. Ooh, Steven okay. Spielberg is a huge Bond fan, and for some reason, he's never directed one of them. I think mm-hmm. part of it is for a really long time they weren't necessarily going for big name filmmakers. I mean, Mark Forrester was kind of tiptoeing towards that. But frankly, Sam Mendes was the first, like, real big get in terms of... Well, here's a question. Are all the directors for James Bond, have they all been British? Or is it they sometimes American? Um, I'm trying to remember. I think the vast majority have been British. So, for the most... Like, so the, the recurring directors, and they kind of rotate in and out. But it's um, Terrence Young, who did 
from Rush with Love. Okay. Guy Hamilton, who did Goldfinger and another a couple of the big ones. Louis Gilbert. Peter Hunt, who did On Her Majesty's Service, who's an editor and hmm. did a great job, but like that movie didn't succeed, so he unfortunately didn't do any more of them. And then one of the most frequent ones is uh, John Glenn, not the astronaut, who was a second unit director and started doing them in the Roger Moore era and continued to do them up through Timothy Dalton. And then Martin Campbell did Goldeneye. Martin Campbell, I think, is... I want to say he's a New Zealander. I would have to double-check that. The fact that you're listing off names in general for me is very impressive. <laughs> keep going. Uh, Martin Campbell also did Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, let me see if I get this. Roger Spottiswood did Tomorrow Never Dies. Michael Apted, who's most famous for doing the Seven Up documentaries. I don't know if you've ever heard reference to those. But it's basically like he... It was a series of documentaries that was fun and secret with people every seven years... Oh, okay, yeah, I've heard of those. Yes, he's a documentarian. He did The World Is Not Enough. Lee Tamahori did Die Another Day. Well, he needed something between the seven years. Hmm? He needed something between yeah, the seven years. Yeah, he needed something to fill his time. Why not yeah, do a yeah. Bond film? Um, and then Mark Forster, you know, had done up to that point, I think Finding Neverland, he had done The Kite Runner. He was an indie director. So all these names you've listed, <clears throat> are they all British? I can or, look it up. Or something I, from those I would aisles. say the vast majority are. Um, mm-hmm. So Kerry Fukunaga is doing... Bond 25. I'm pretty sure he's not British. Okay. Um, Sam Mendes is, though. Okay. And I think that's what helped make Spectre feel so quintessentially British. Like, that movie is unashamedly British, and it's part of the reason I love it so much. But, I mean, he was the first Oscar-winning director to do a Bond film. Like, that was a huge, huge get for them. And I think along with that, they were able to get someone like Javier Bardem, again, also an Oscar-winning actor playing a villain. Who did a great job. He is, a, and he's a great villain in that. And I, I think that... And, and then, in, ter- in terms of plotting, that's actually the kind of villain that I'm more interested in. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you why when we get there, but yes. Yeah. And so I think that helped push the franchise up into this sort of um, kind of upper echelon of who they could get in terms of casting, right? So it's like they get Javier Bardem, they get Christoph Waltz, right? They are now getting Rami Malek. Like they're getting bigger and bigger names as they go along. Is Daniel Craig making another James Bond movie? 25 will be his last one. The okay. one in production right now will be his last. Um, part of the problem is with... the 25th James Bond movie, presumably. Yes, exactly. Or the it, it is the tw- it is the 25th official James Bond movie. Yes, exactly. There are two unofficial James Bond movies, which is the one with Sean Connery, and then which other one? The 1967 Casino Royale. Got which the, has... the, the made for TV one. Uh, no, so there's a, a 1950s made for TV Casino Royale. Then there okay. is a comedy film from the 1960s called Casino Royale because I won't get into the whole details. Doesn't matter. But basically when the production company who owns Bond originally secured the rights, they did not get Casino Royale. Someone else had it at the time. Oh, because it's it's the book. So they didn't yeah. secure the rights for the book. Yeah, yeah. I, exactly. I do remember hearing about that. Yeah. Um, um, okay. And, and then there's so, Never Say Never Again, which is a remake of Thunderball starring Sean Connery. Okay. So then we need it to be Supremely Confident Guy. There need to be a series of women. Yeah. Gadgets, uh, cars. Gadgets, cars, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then now talk to me about and so and you want to set it, set it in the 1960s, which sounds amazing. Yes, talk to me about what you, what your James Bond movie would be. So again, this I'm kind of approaching this as the the Bond film that would never get made. Sure, right. So we know that Bond. It's like, it's like writing the perfect spec script. Exactly. Yeah. It's, this is a spec script for an episode that will never happen. But it's it's the essence like it's you can do things in this that wouldn't normally happen like the exactly. the friends one where they all get AIDS, <laughs> which is a real spec episode of a friend of uh, friends. I don't know who wrote it, but it is fantastic. It's 
the perfect spec episode because it's something that could never happen in the TV show. And it is yeah. the one where they all get AIDS and it's amazing. Oh my God. I have to track that down because that sounds absolutely hilarious. I have it. I can email it P- to you. Please do. Absolutely. Please do. Yeah. So th- this is the, the Bond film that the, the Broccoli's, the family that has maintained rights to the Bond franchise his entire continuity. Say their last name again? The Broccoli's. So, Great. Wonderful. So, so Albert R. Cubby Broccoli was one of the two producers Terrible of the original name. films. I know. His stepson, Michael G. Wilson, has been highly Better. involved in the films for years. And then his daughter, Barbara Broccoli, is now one of the main producers. Man, that's a fantastic name. Isn't that not that's like one of the best names possible? Name. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> like, oh man, that's wonderful. You, people would probably assume that was Poison Ivy's real name, is Barbara Broccoli. I feel like Barbara Broccoli... I didn't say Barbara Broccoli was a competent... Because <laughs> Poison Ivy, like, you do the whole thing, like, she's supposed to be, like, sexy or whatever. Like, yeah. I feel like Barbara Broccoli has, like, curly hair and, and uh, uh, bottle glasses. What is it? Yeah, she's like a, like a neighbor next door sort of character, yeah. right? Good old Barbara Broccoli. And yet, somehow, she always wins the, like, uh, the garden fair. Yeah, oh, yeah. She she is one up on everyone around here, and no one can figure out how she does it. Ba- Babs' petunias just can't be beat. <laughs> Oh, my God. I hope Barbara Broccoli has really lovely petunias. If she doesn't, I'm so disappointed. I know. I, I but, mean, it's, she uh, she's the queen of the Cassiferous. <laughs> yes, she is. Very good, Paul. So they, like, they are very protective of their franchise. They will probably keep making movies beyond the Craig era once this one's done. They will very likely set it in modern times, which honestly is the better way to go. You know, I think... Bond, I feel like through history, like through time, should be the kind of the avatar for masculinity, and I think in, within that it should evolve over time, right? So like okay, Sean Connery's version that. of Bond is, you know, very kind of hard edge and dismissive and very cynical. Yep, terrible. And exactly what you said. Exactly, a horrible human being. Awful. Also, as is Sean Connery. Yep. Then you look at Daniel Craig, and he, you know, he's a who he's the, tough. Who knew the one on SNL would be the better one? I know, right? It's, it's crazy. No, and like Daniel Craig has done a lot with it, and I think he's brought a sense of like compassion and humanity to it that others have tried, but he really, really nailed. And you know, and I think that Bond should be a way to look at kind of how men can and should be in a modern context. Um, you know, I mean, you can be, you can have machismo without being toxic, mm-hmm. right? And I think that the contemporary films have tried to address the toxic element of Bond's toxic masculinity. So that's where they would go with it. I think it's the way to go. The idea here is, can you apply that same sort of modern perspective to a character that is forced to be in the 1960s? Mm-hmm. So kind of the exercise I was doing mentally on this is looking at the world of 1960s espionage as this boys club, right? It's all these men smoking cigars and drinking and coming up with these crazy plots and just kind of fucking with each other. And around them is all this collateral damage. And specifically the idea that in that world, a lot of the collateral damage is women, which has been a huge part of the Bond franchise. We even said that a trope is that the secondary Bond girl gets killed. Yep. So how can we look at the collateral damage that specifically women are facing around the Bond universe at the time of the 1960s? A a thing that they mostly gloss over in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, And I think this one is pretty interesting because it already features kind of two prominent women in the form of uh, Tatiana Romanova, the main Bond girl, and then Rosa Klebb, who's kind of the overarching villain. Which, frankly, for a... 50% of that was very progressive. 
Yeah. The other 50% of it <laughs> was awful. Yeah, and, and I think there's an interesting way to take the, a, a character like Tatiana, like Tanya, and modernize her a little bit and have her push back against all the shit that's happening to her and make her less of just someone who's dragged along the way. Well, the one thing, Quantum of Solace is not a good movie, but... I'm a slight defender of it. I recognize that it would suffer from the writer's strike. Yes, but the one thing that I always really liked is that there's this beautiful woman in the movie and she's like, yeah, you're attractive, but I'm not going to sleep with you. Yeah, yeah. And I always had like, and then, which obviously internet trolls were like, no, Bond must have all the sex. Yeah. Uh, but I always respected that. I was like, yeah, it's, she's got a lot of shit going on right now. I'm sure, she, like, even if she was into him, like, this is not the emotional time for her to be, yeah. to be doing that. Uh, but, I mean, her in, t- in the movie she was Tatiana? Yeah. Or Tanya? Yeah, Tanya, Tatiana. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically, she is being coerced into being in love with bond and then she is in love with bond and that i was never able to suspend my disbelief for that while yeah. watching for Marshall with love because basically the first scene is she goes in to see uh this the evil woman rosa club rosa club and rosa club says all right so here's what you're gonna do here's mm-hmm. what's gonna happen if you don't do it i'm gonna kill you yeah and so tanya has to be in love with bond mm-hmm and then she actually falls in love with Bond, which makes no sense to me at all. Yeah. I, I don't care who the dude is. I don't care how amazing the dude is. If, like, you're being there because the option is death, only other option is death. Yeah. That's some serious Stockholm Syndrome shit. No, it is. And, you know, one of the great things about Casino Royale is that it, it does acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. that you know, and then they film them having sex, which is weird. And that somehow is the blackmail, which also didn't make sense to me. It, yeah, it really does. We're going to blackmail you by you having sex with this beautiful blonde woman. Okay? Yeah. For what? Well, th- uh, you're a philanderer. Yeah. Have you not read my Twitter? Yeah, I know. Exactly. Well, like, also, they're going to kill him anyways. Yeah. So it's, 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 a little, it's a little murky what their motivations there are. But... Like when they cut behind the mirror and it's just the two of them filming it, I'm like, oh, no, why? Yeah. Why is this happening? Also, I love this like Rosa Klebb just there like smoking a cigarette, just like watching it happen. Yeah. She's totally into it. I mean, she's for sure into it. Oh, yeah. She's, she's definitely into it. But so, you know, I, I think the way to look at Tanya as a character is to, exactly to your point, she's forced into doing this and... Maybe over the course of the movie, she starts to develop an appreciation for Bond. Because, like, in this world, he is supposed to be very handsome and very charming. And I think, I I don't think Sean Connery ever kind of put in the effort to be that way. I think he naturally came off that way. But, you know, if you imagine you put someone into the Bond role who also is kind of actively charming and who has a bit of a, like, a softer, sympathetic edge, you could see someone in her situation developing some sort of feeling for him, some sort of appreciation. Especially if she comes from a place where she's never really gotten positive reinforcement. Yeah. Although, no, that's a dumb thought. Um, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I... Because ca- I kind of had comical names for all the different things that I cast. One of them was woman who is being blackmailed but falls for James. Yes. The, the thing is, is that she's being coerced into falling in love with James. Yeah. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. If she's being coerced into doing something else and then while doing something else, meets James and falls in love with him, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. It's because she was specifically told at gunpoint, go be in love with this man that I'm never in. But if it's yeah. being told at gunpoint, no, this is the job that you have to do. Well, you need to do this because otherwise we'll kill you. Mm-hmm. And she's doing that, doing that, and then all of a sudden there's this guy here who's helping her and kind of preventing her from being killed. Yeah. And then also turns out to be like a reasonable human being. 
I can kind of see that. Mm-hmm. Like um, immediately, like you emotionally bond with the person. Like you're making it so I don't die. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the plot of Casino Royale, right? It's like Vesper yeah. is being coerced into sabotaging Bond, right? And because he actively, at times, shows her like genuine kindness and sympathy. Fifty-fifty, um, but yes. Yeah, exactly. There are times he's just a, a right bastard, which he should be. Like, Bond as a character should be a bit of a bastard, but he also has a soft spot, and so... He's uh, he's the terrible guy with the heart of gold? Yes. What's, kind of. What What's the, the actual expression? Um, the crotchety old man with the heart of gold or whatever it is? I mean, is. I always hear the phrase, hooker with the heart of gold, but that's that's just I'm also Julia Roberts, a fan so. of Futurama. Hooker with the heart of hooker gold? Hooker bot with the heart of gold. Oh, Hooker yeah. bot with the heart of solid gold. That was a thing, wasn't it, in one of the episodes? <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, wh- where is, like, the best place to start? Do we start with, I guess, who's your, like, who did you cast for Bond? I guess, would that be the best place to start, I suppose? Before we get into that, I mm-hmm. still, because we still haven't talked about plot. Okay. Like, I want to talk about, like, I mean, we're in the 1960s, great. Yeah. And we, and I kind of understand that we need to be creating a better world for women in this. And honestly, the quantum of solace, like, partnership as they both are working towards a goal is the kind of relationship that I would aspire to with this movie. Mm-hmm. But what's their goal? What's the MacGuffin? What are they doing? What do we want them to get? Yeah. So I, so when I was watching this, I was originally trying to come up with, um, you know, something entirely different. And I always love when movies weave in, um, especially their period pieces, politics at the time. Yeah. And I couldn't really find anything, particularly interesting in regards to say like British politics or even um, like Turkish politics at the time. So then I thought, okay, well what's going on with the actual plot here itself? And you know, it's got a pretty convenient MacGuffin in terms of this, this lecture machine. Right. So I kind of took more or less, more or less a similar sort of plot, but the difference is, is that, you know, again, giving Tanya some of her own agency is that she's smart enough to recognize that she's basically being just used by everyone for the lecture. Right. So she realizes she has to bring something else to the table. And so the idea is that she has a, like my version of her would have a photographic memory. And that's part of the reason why she like works in this like consulate office is she just knows all this sort of shit or by coincidence, she's able to remember all this shit. So she basically goes, look, you can get the lecture, but also I'm value. I've like basically read through like every file on every covert operative. The Russians have stashed anywhere. That's all in my brain. You, like, you want me to. So she has her own sense of value. She has her own goal, which is like, okay, well, if they just want the electric machine, I'm going to force Bond to also get me out of the country and bring me along with him, and I actually have something to offer. Here's my spin pitch off of that. Yeah. Instead of necessarily giving her a photographic memory, mm-hmm. what if she's the only one that knows how to use the machine? Because mm. uh, what, what was the Alan Turing movie? Uh, mm. The Imitation Game. Yes. The Imitation Game is they have one of the, the Nazi decoders mm-hmm. – but they don't know how to use it. Right. They haven't figured out the code. Like that's the whole, like the whole problem is that they, they figured they got this machine, but the machine is useless to them without the code. Mm-hmm. And so Tanya's Russian. Yeah. She might be someone who can use the machine. Ah, and okay, so she I can like say, this, yeah. well, look, you can leave me behind, but then you're going to spend two years figuring out how to use this machine. And at that point, everything could be over. Yeah. Or you can bring me with, and it's a package deal. You not only won, have to get me out of the country, but you too have to keep me alive mm-hmm. because this MacGuffin is useless without me. Yeah. I like because that. Because only I can use it. I like that a lot. And, and I think from there then you, 
you put more emphasis on the story of Bond having to get the two of them out. Yes. Right? Whereas... It may- is a companion mission. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe originally it was more about just getting in there or getting the machine. And, you know, maybe his mission was like, he was basically told like, hey, get in there, use the girl to get what you need, and then leave her behind. She's yeah. too much of a liability. And now he's like, oh, fuck, I have to get her out too. And that complicates everything. And so the movie... And I literally think that's your act one. He gets the machine, he leaves the girl behind. Oh, okay. And because he doesn't realize that. And somehow she is able to figure out a way to track him down and get them and say, no, 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 no. Yeah. I'm coming with you. Here's why. Or he has to go back. Or better yet, he has to go back. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Because I, 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 I like the chase part of this a little bit. I like mm-hmm. the part where they're trying to get out of there. I think the ending drags out when it's like, it's a train fight. And then there's a helicopter chase and a boat chase. And then there's a fight again in Venice. And it starts to feel like a little bit of just like an ending upon right. an ending. But I think if you make that more of like an extended chase. Which, by the way, the, the actual line, ending of this movie is terrible. Oh, it is. No, it absolutely is. It's uh, with Crab, like the, oh, big, terrible, evil organization. And their big master plan at the end for getting the, uh, the, the device is she dresses as a maid and sneaks into his room to try to take it. And Wh- then when she's found out... She's pinned to the wall with a chair and can't figure out how to kick him. Yes, with her poison-tipped shoe. I like the poison-tipped shoe. That's a kind of a clever idea, but yeah, it's, it's a very but silly But as soon ending. as she got into the room, as soon as he turns his back, she should have poison-tipped shoe kicked him. Great, you're dead in 12 seconds. I'm going to go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just walk up. Boop. Bye. This is great. No, that's particularly uh, terrible. But yeah, I like the idea of extending the, the chase part of it, which again... Because then she can... Because then Tanya can then be captured. Like, she's left behind. Yeah. So she's captured. But she's captured by people who know her value. Yes, exactly. They just don't care about her self-worth, so they will either torture the information out of her or, like, force her to do it somehow. Yeah. And so Bond then has to go rescue the girl, and maybe the girl figures out a way to get out of there, but that's it. Like, that, they, that's your act two. Yeah. And so it's, number one, act one, get the thing. Number two, get the woman who is rescued and you should have rescued her in the first place and by not by not valuing this human being all of a sudden your job is 10 times harder yes and then act three is getting everybody out yeah getting everybody out and i feel like the way that dynamic should end is um again it's this idea of it's all about a game it's a game Mm -hmm. for bond it's a game for m it's a game for uh his russian counterparts and to some degree it's a game for specter but they're the ones who are like kind of messing with everything from the sidelines but it's a game and tanya realizes she's cut up in the middle of it so by the time they actually get to england she basically walks away from bond and she's like okay like you dragged me through all of this all this was a game to you i don't actually mean anything to you you just want me for what i have to offer Mm -hmm. fuck you i'm done and she she walks away from him like i think they i think there still is a bit of a romantic relationship that develops to some degree in there Mm -hmm. but she comes to realize that no matter what, Bond doesn't really value her, and she right. walks away. She can literally say something along the lines of, "I'm a refugee. Like I need to escape, and I or I I need to disappear. Yeah, and I can't disappear as long as you are here because I'll always try and find you." And she literally will walk into like an, an American embassy, for example. Yeah, and because then she can go disappear somewhere else. Yeah, she can just get the hell out of there. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the again the yeah the way to approach it is give her agency, give her something to do, give her yeah. Make her more than just a puppet, basically, which is what right. she is. Or acknowledge that she's being treated like a puppet and then have her push back against that. And I like it because it, it kind of follows the initial Bond trope of, eh, she's a woman. 
Yeah. But, oh, no, 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 she has a lot of value and she's actually useful and capable and is yeah. a really competent, you know, a human being. A human being, yeah. Oh, and, man, you should have rescued the human being like a hero would have done. Right? And I, I think that's an interesting way to take the whole thing is that, you know, these stuffy men basically are making all these calls, but there are a lot of women that are involved in all of it. And I think, again, you you also establish Rosa Klebb in the, the kind of remade version of being... I, I would actually combine her and Kronstein. So Kronstein was the the chess guy at the very beginning who like mapped this whole thing out. And was super agree. arrogant. Yeah, yeah. You think you make that one character, and you do make her like maybe a little bit arrogant, but like genuinely a genius. Like Absolutely. this is her whole thing. You have her be uh, the Madame Poison from Wonder Woman. Yes, exactly. If Madame Poison actually had something to do, she made the thing he put in his nose. I know. I just I really love Wonder Woman for the first two thirds, and then I yeah. really hate the third act. Yeah, well, Ugh. he does a thing with his fingers, and now he has a weird Arthurian helmet, but still has a mustache, which it looks dumb. And I love David Thewlis, but he doesn't work in that role. My pitch for how Wonder Woman would have been better would have been as soon as she stabs the other guy, mm-hmm. that's it, she killed him. Yeah, that's it. But the war's not over. Yes, and now all of a sudden they have oh, that was supposed to do it. That's what that was supposed to happen. It was poisoning the hearts of men, and then it's. No, he wasn't. We're just like this. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah, because we're going on a Wonder Woman tangent here, but, but I, I, we, uh, I did a, a big super, uh, superfluous boss battle does nothing. It does nothing. And so when Wonder Woman came out, uh, we did a crossover podcast with some of our other fellow Nerdist folks. I listened to um, it. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a super fun episode. I yeah. love doing those crossovers. And uh, Amanda, um, who was on that episode, had this great point, which was they wrote themselves into a corner, essentially, mm-hmm. with Wonder Woman because... She believes that it's just Ares' fault that the war is happening. And if it turns out that she's wrong about that, then you've made your lead character, your female lead character, wrong through the whole thing. But if she's right, then there's not an interesting message there. It's just like, oh, someone else is causing this to happen. And so I think, yeah, what you came up with there was kind of like a nice medium sort of thing. And even still, I'm perfectly comfortable with a character being wrong. You can Mm -hmm. believe something. You just have to, when you learn that that thing is wrong, adapt and change. Yeah. You can't then be committed to, oh, no, no, I did the thing. I got to go because I was right. Yeah. It's about how characters react to losing that I think makes them compelling. Yeah. Or react to having, being confronted with, information that proves they're incorrect yeah i think if someone is correct because then it turns out she's right oh she killed Ares, and and it was him poisoning the hearts of men or whatever and then world war ii happens yeah i know and then wars continue to happen they skip for the sequel yeah exactly this jump to the 80s yeah which it doesn't work yeah because and so that that that's why i think it was like as soon as she did it was like Okay, good. Yeah. Secret, um, secret bonus series. I know. I don't know. It, was, it was it was bizarre, but yeah. I, I think it's anyway. a good, it's good comparison. Yeah, I think you but, make yeah, you make the Rosa Club character the the true genuine architect yeah. of this whole thing. Um I I mean, I'm perfectly happy to have like an evil man fronting the money kind of like with the big master plan yeah. and then trusting this woman to execute it. I think that's how I cast it. That makes sense to me. Yeah. because uh, there there have been only a handful of true female villains mm-hmm. in Bond. Um, the world is not enough. I guess this is technically a spoiler, but that movie is 20 years old at this point. Yeah, so, yeah. like, in that movie, Sophie Marceau, who is generally one of the best Bond girls ever, but in a lesser film. But, you know, she is proven to be the true mastermind. And even going into... And that's, it's a great reveal, and she is a really fantastic villain. And it helps, too, that... 
the other villain in that movie is also pretty solid. So it's like, we already were happy with the villain we got, and then we got a bonus villain who's like mm-hmm. even better. And even going into Spectre, I was really hoping that, you know, all this subterfuge of like, oh, Christoph Waltz isn't playing Blofeld, he's not playing Bofeld. I was really hoping that that was everyone's assumptions, like, oh, he's clearly Blofeld. And the twist was going to be it's actually Monica Bellucci's character. Ooh, that would have been cool. Was going to be Blofeld. And I think, like, you know, I... Which is what Iron Man 3 was supposed to be before... Exactly. The, before before uh, uh, produced the studio. I think, I think Ike Perlmutter got all pissed off about it because Ike Perlmutter was a piece of shit. Yeah. But yeah. literally, like, she was supposed to be uh, the Mandarin. Yeah. And this other dude was just supposed to be some schmuck. And then, like, Shane Black had to make the, sh- the schmuck the Mandarin. Yeah, exactly. And I still love Iron Man 3. I, yeah, I was outside for it. But, like, that small change would have been amazing. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that becomes a key element of representation is, you know, seeing diverse characters in every aspect, right? I mean, like a good example is, you know, we, for a long time, like every Disney villain mm-hmm. codes gay in a lot of ways. Like every Disney animated movie villain codes gay. And so you start to see gay personas in villains and this basically a way of like subtly villainizing homosexuality Mm -hmm. and then you know the shift becomes okay we start seeing more positive representation which is a critical step in the whole process like there has to be positive diverse representation for a long time to the point where just these characters exist normally and then beyond that the next step is to have them be villains again like as a gay man i want to see more gay villains that have it not be that they you know it's not part of their do that in superman i don't remember i feel like we did i feel like i've had this conversation a lot with people well i want more gay villains yeah and I think, you know, with women, it's the same thing. We're like, we, we get more positive representation. Women get to be heroes. But now, also let them be the villains. Because sometimes the villains are the best characters. Absolutely. Sometimes the villains get the most stuff to Those do. Those are the memorable people. Yeah. And you're not... Like, James Bond will always be James Bond. But we talk about Blofeld. We talk about Dr. No. Yeah. We talk about the dude with the teeth. Jaws. Sure. Yeah. We talk about the dude with the hat. Odd job. Yes. <laughs> uh, we talk about some third one in this list. Yes, exactly. But I, I think... There's a, so many different ways you can cast Bond, but I think that a Bond as a character must always be male. Again, kind of my theory about yeah, how I consider he's doing an a gender flip, but it doesn't quite work because that's yeah. not that's not James Bond exactly. I, At I the end think... of the day, you're not going to be able to get people on board with a changed message in a changed world unless you start by speaking a language they'll understand. Exactly, I, I think Bond gets to become the avatar of men, and then so you build interesting context around mm-hmm. him. You challenge that character in a way that you want to see men challenged. Yes. Um, but so part of that solution is do more female villains. Right. And part of what I think would make this interesting is if, let's say, there is a big female villain, but I kind of like the idea of there being a lead dude, but I want it to be a lead dude who... So one of the things about reality right now is that we've got real-life villains all over the place. What fun. Yes. But one of the things that makes them real-life villains is their incompetence and their prejudice. Yeah. And that's what fills us with false, well, hopefully not false hope that we can win. But let's say we take a villain who doesn't have incompetence, doesn't have prejudice. Yeah. Just has a goal and, and literally it could be a game recognized game type situation of the bad guy is the one who recognizes the value in these women. Yeah. And the good guys don't. Yeah. So it's this bad guy. Let's say it's Blofeld. Let's say it's not. Mm Mm-hmm. The lead scary bad guy is the one that's coming in and going, oh, okay, you're really good at this. You want to come take over the world with me? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and you, the easy way to uh, kind of acknowledge that idea is, you know, when someone asks the Kleb character, like, you know, 
didn't you defect? She's like, yeah, the Russians wanted nothing to do with me. Spectre did. Yeah. Spectre actually was like, all right, let's see what you got. She was number three. Yeah. That's really high. And conceivably, probably got a promotion to number two, if only briefly. I mean, we don't know what that other guy's rank was. He, I think I think Kronstein was number two. Was he? I thought he was. I don't know. Maybe uh, Kix McGee was number two. I really wish that was an actual James Bond character. Kix McGee? Kix McGee, yes. Look, they, all of the James Bond enforcers have to <clears throat> have some sort of physical characteristic. Just, that, yeah. it's, the, it's the mouth, it's the hat. Yeah, uh, Inspector, he had the, sh- the metal fingernails. Yep. He did? Yeah. That's like, it's like it's like barely mentioned at all, but his like he has like these like sharp metal talon fingernails. That's why like when he like pokes the guy's eye out, he's like actually like literally like stabbing the guy's eyes. Oh, gr- creepy and gross. Yeah, like that's barely even addressed. Yeah, but it's there. But yeah, but literally that. Yeah. Um, I don't. Know, I think it's cool. Kicks McGee. Yeah. No, I like it. Bronze and, kneecap. Right. Ah. Oh. Great villain of the Crimson Chin. They they all come together and they make a giant. <laughs> it's it's so it's so so fantastic. Oh my god! If Cameron were here, my other co-host, you would have. He could list all of those. Yeah, I, I can only do a handful There's, of them. I don't know the the achy back. The is the bronze kneecap. The the crystal skull. Yes, let's say yeah, absolutely <laughs> the crystal skull. So no one like ever that. talks about the Crystal Skull. A lot of people pretend that the Crystal Skull doesn't exist. Look, any odd number Indiana Jones movie is great. I agree. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, <laughs> there's uh, hoping for five. Uh, um, but no, I, I think that works. You, you know, you kind of you make the Bond film about how the women around these men are underappreciated and undervalued. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's it. Because I think that's you have your like plot and then you have your message and i think yeah. that's kind of what we've covered yeah and then you just put it all in the 60s exactly yeah and i, and I think the, the funny of the 60s is you get to play in the 60s era of espionage right they mm-hmm. do that someone here it's like some of this here too they have the code signals right and the hidden messages and all these things that now become irrelevant with modern technology right it's right you know a lot of this stuff all of a sudden becomes superfluous if a cell phone is introduced yeah you put it back in the 60s and yeah. you know these like actually the idea of trying to extract someone out mm-hmm. of istanbul and get them all the way to the united kingdom with it is hard it's a lot lot harder yeah mm-hmm. you can't just like text on but like dude we're, we're, we're ready where are you, you can't it's... hop on your bird scooter and roll away exactly yeah so oh it's a worse world on a bird scooter i can't even i mean I would love that. I know. I, it because it, it's oh, uh, what is comedy? It's uh, it's doing something crazy to a high stakes character. It's um, isn't it just like it's sideshow Bob getting hit in the face with a rake? Yeah, because he's the like the ultimate. Uh, um, it's like it's like if you um, you subvert the power status. Yes, it's status. Thank you. Yeah, it you take the high status character and bring them low. That's comedy. Yeah, exactly. Good comedy. Yes. Yeah, a lot of American comedy is like, let's take the high-status character and then have him pick on a lower-status character. Let's punch and down. And it's funny. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, that's not how this works. No, no, punch up. Punch up, punch, yeah, you no. fool. Yeah. Do what Mel Brooks did. Always punch up. Yeah. <sighs> so, let's get into casting then. Okay. So, um, and I, I don't know if this some of your stuff changed a little bit with the, the new setting. I mean, I'm going to still go with these characters... Because I think that they're still good choices, mm-hmm. and then we can just see uh, how. They, I mean, the one okay. that the one that won't work is M, 
but okay. I'm still going to say it. Okay. It, in my head, it still works. Okay. So uh, how do you want to start us off here? Let's start with James Bond. Okay. The elephant in the room is Idris Elba. Yes. The thing is that I think Idris Elba, when they were recasting Daniel Craig, would have been the perfect, correct James Bond. Agreed. But uh, that also, was... Chuta Ejiofor would have been great, too. Yes. Uh, that was a character that was also recommended to me. Oh, yeah. I had to... Um, this won't come out by the time we record. So uh, the movie I'm going to be doing immediately after this one is the movie Ronin. Mm-hmm. And I did my casting for that before I did the casting for this. And I made my the Robert De Niro lead, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. really, really good. And my friend who I was talking to was like, well, why don't you do Chiwetel Ejiofor for, for Bond? And I'm like, mm-hmm, can't. Um, I'll think about it. Yeah. And she doesn't know that I can't because I'm in next episode. Yeah. So, spoiler. But we'll see if it... Eh, yeah. I, I, don't have, I don't have an audience. Yeah. Uh, no, you, you have to. Uh, probably. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but... The, the... But yeah, no, I agree. He also would have been great 10 years ago. Yeah. And I, I think... Because, you know, in my opinion, I would really like the next Bond to be a person of color. I agree. And, I, you know, for me, Bond has to be somehow British adjacent. Yes. Bond cannot be American. No. Um, I mean, the reality is Bond has been Scottish, English, Australian, Welsh, Irish. Mm-hmm. You know. By way of uh, France. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's been all these things. Well, and- the crazy thing is I was looking up Daniel Craig, and Daniel Craig is literally... English, Welsh, Scottish, and Irish. Right, yeah. He's, he he's literally all is all four. Yeah, he's all of them combined together. So, you know, you just have to, that that actor has to be a, somehow British-related, British-adjacent. Yes. Has other, to be very handsome and charming as fuck. Yes. The other thing that I did was there are two different kinds of male power fantasies. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of see that a little bit with James Bond of this is the kind of the male fantasy of like, and even, like, take something like Dragon Ball Z. Mm-hmm. Dragon Ball Z are these, like, ridiculously roided-out dudes because they assume that the dudes who are sitting at home watching this wish they could be a crazy roided-out yeah. dude. And even Daniel Craig, to an extent, is kind of a muscly guy. He's very muscular, yeah. Yeah. So, for me, I kind of have an idea of, like, a different take on the ideal man, let's say. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily muscular, but certainly fit. I yeah. Mean, obviously, it's James Bond he's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not necessarily, like, overly muscular. Okay. So, my... Uh, James Bond is Jacob Anderson. Who's Jacob Anderson? He's Grey Worm on Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. He's someone that we recognize. Oh, I actually, I, I had him in there for, for like supporting stuff. Okay. He's someone that we recognize, but he's some like we know him, but all of a sudden I want, but we, but I think we can be impressed by him. Okay. And part of the reason why I think he's kind of a good idea is because do you happen to know what he does when he's not doing Game of Thrones? Isn't he a musician? Oh, is he? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I thought I read that. He's a writer for British Sports TV. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, I was looking at his IMDb Pro, and it kept saying writer, 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 writer. Yeah. For, like, all these, like, British sports things. And I was like, really? Because I wouldn't have pegged that for yeah. him. Yeah. And it's someone who you look at, he's playing the type of character that he is, but he's also very, very clever. Yeah. And I thought that that was interesting. Oh. And I also just, I like him. I like him too, yeah. I have a backup, but I don't like using backups if I can help Okay. Um, So it's interesting. I approach that from a very similar perspective too. Oh, okay. Because I think we've done the big muscular, like kind of macho version. Yeah. Um, So I think you kind of then go for a more, exactly like kind of like slim down, 
like a little more traditionally handsome kind of like polished angle. Mm-hmm. Like you don't try and you don't then go around and like cast Tom Hardy in this like for example. Right. And I think that's maybe one of the problems with doing say Idris Elba. He's like this like big, very right. macho, just like super super cool guy. I think you got to go for a different angle. Um so I went for Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. Oh, that's an interesting choice. And I specifically went for him and I, again, I had the advantage of knowing this is where I want to go with it. But in the 60s, I think he makes a really, really good Bond. Probably. In particular. because Like you take the Tom Hiddleston that was in um, Kong Skull Island? Yes, exactly. Or uh, I haven't seen it, but The Night Manager. I've heard he's really good in that too. And I haven't that, seen that, it either. I'm of, actually just not familiar with that at all. Yeah, it's um, it's a, I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a Lacare adaptation. So it's, mm-hmm. it's espionage. It was... I mean, he certainly fits the mold. AMC. He's instantly charming. Yeah. And the ladies love him. More than just the ladies love him. And what I like about him, too, is that he he has that biting edge when he needs to. Yeah. And he's cool. But he is able to convey a softness and a sense of an empathy. And I think that's super, super important. Even mm-hmm. if Bond a lot of times isn't utilizing his empathy or isn't broadcasting it, it still has to be there. And he's, you can see him being the kind of person that when you look at him, you can feel that coming off of him, even if the way he's acting doesn't convey it necessarily. Hmm. And I think he'd be, yeah, a very good fit for the 1960s. Do you especially. think he's too recognizable at this point? No, I mean, I think you he is kind of a big name, and Bond oftentimes will kind of go for the lesser-known people, but not always the case. I mean, Roger Moore was a really huge TV star with The Saint when they cast him. I mean, he was his I name mean, was getting thrown around also even fighting the Sean back Connery from um, Lazenby. Thank you, because Lazenby yeah. was the unknown. Exactly, but I mean, also, I mean, Pierce Brosnan was like this fan favorite. He was supposed to take over when Timothy Dalton got cast. He was literally on his way to the press announcement that he was a new Bond when NBC calls him to say that his contract for Remington Steel got renewed. Like, like literally, it was down to the last day. They were unsure if they were going to renew Remington Steel, and they waited to the last possible day when his contract was still valid. That was the day they were going to announce him. They called him. It's like, yeah, we're still doing another season, and he then couldn't do Bond because he was contractually like, obligated. Yeah, contractually obligated. I mean, a that's terrible. I know. I mean, he got it eventually, though, right? Yeah. So it's like, but even when he was cast, that was like, oh, this is a name that's been bandied about a whole bunch. And so, and, and Daniel Craig wasn't really well known when they cast him. So there's kind of yeah, precedent I, I for, for both. I honestly don't know what Daniel Craig did prior to being Bond. Yeah. And I would speculate that when they come around to doing the next Bond, I think it'll be someone who is a little bit of a household name. Probably. If only because Daniel Craig is now so defined with that role and obviously, Bond is one of those things where it's constantly getting recast. Like, that's a conversation every Bond actor gets. Oh, who do you want to replace you? Yeah. But I think Bond, uh, Craig has been such a big deal that I think they need to retain that star power a little bit. And they'll probably cast someone with a bit of a name behind them. I think that's true, and I think that's fair. All right, we'll go with Tom Hiddleston. Okay. I like in... I think if we were doing a modern version, I would actually really like Jacob Anderson, too. I think he's definitely got some potential there. But yeah. All right. So then... Let's talk about uh, M. I'll say my M first because okay. with the world that we've created, she's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very excited. Who did you, who'd you go for? Helen Mirren. Uh, again, she'd be fucking fantastic. Yeah. Again, modern Bond. Yeah. She would be ideal. Totally down She's perfect. perfect. Yeah. Uh, but in the 50s with the world that we've created, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. So tell me who our M is. Uh, I went for Charles Dance. Tell me about Charles Dance. So Charles Dance is Tywin Lannister in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, great. 
Yeah, he he pops up in all kinds of stuff. Um, I was actually just listening to a podcast interview with him, and he's he's really really fun and charming. And I had a, a long list of people I was bouncing around. I had um, like some of the and other. And he's coming options. off of his uh, th- triumph in Godzilla: King of Monsters. Oh god, I know that fucking movie is so bad. Here's the thing: all the monster parts are great. I found them to get a little bit gratuitous and redundant at a certain point. Yeah, it's Godzilla. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, yeah. I, and at that point, you weren't happy because you were watching the people. You got to slog through the people to get through the monsters. Through the monsters, yeah. I felt that way about the, the 2014 one as well, which is like when they actually had the monsters on screen, it was like super yeah. fun. Yeah, when, when you could see them. When you could see them, exactly, yeah. Um, but I thought Charles Dance would be good. I mean, I, was, I had a couple of ideas. I'm like, oh, like maybe like a Hugh Bonneville, but I feel like he would be too bubbly and light. And so my mind is, you know, this is the 1960s. Who's going to feel like a guy who worked his way through the Royal Navy and held the position of yeah, admiral. Yeah, that and is then, for sure Charles Dance. Yeah, I, some of the other options I had were a little bit softer. I feel like it had to be a bit of a harder-edged guy. And Charles Dance also very much feels like someone who'd be sitting in the boys' club, smoking a cigar, being like, isn't life just the best? Yeah. I've earned this by being me. Exactly. And he's got a bit of like a, a better biting... accent. Y- yes. <laughs> No, that's the accent he's going to use for the whole thing. Oh, great. Um, but he's got like a bit of a biting sense of humor, too, which I feel like is critical. So that was who I went with. The good old, good old Charles Dance. <laughs> Chucky D. All right, then tell me about your cue. Okay, the cue, this one might be a bit challenging given the time period. But I think kind of the, given the idea that we had about women being in the background of all this was still super critical. I went with Tilda Swinton. Ooh, interesting choice. I feel like it might be a bit out of place in the 1960s. Yeah. But I feel like it could still kind of work. And I, I mostly chose her for her fantastic dry sense of humor, which is like the biggest thing with Q. Is Q's always yes. the dry quipster paired up against Bond. Yes. Q is always funny to Bond's dry. Yes, exactly. Which is why I uh, went with uh, Franz Drama. He is Firestorm on Legends of Tomorrow. He's in Attack the Block. He's uh, on... I'm sorry, Firestorm in... Yeah, yeah, Legends of Tomorrow. He's in Attack the Block. And in Edge of Tomorrow, he's the black guy. Look him up. Normally I have my laptop for IMDb Pro in front of me. Oh, oh, I love him. The reason why I picked him is because he's young. And I kind of have in in my head the idea of Q being someone who wishes he could be Bond, but he doesn't have any of those skills, but he has these skills, so he's yeah. doing them to kind of, like, say, wouldn't it be cool if you use this? Oh, my God. And if you use this, this, and this. So, like, I'm really cool and stuff also, and I can make this stuff, but, oh, man, when you're using it, it's going to be great. Yeah. And just, like, that overly enthusiastic, just, like, this is going to be the best thing. Yeah. But then also he's just a really cool dude who can totally play it cool because he needs to be a spy. I mean, at the end of the day, he yeah. works for a spy agency, mm-hmm. and he, so he can turn it on and off, and... He's an amazing actor, and I love him, and he's wonderful. I like that idea. Cool. I like that idea a lot. I think I think that still works in a 60s context, too, but again, because he's young. Yeah. Like, it would be out there, but then that also kind of sets up the idea of, like, well, okay, maybe maybe M is a little more open-minded than we thought sometimes. Right. The fact that he's got Q in there. And I do think it's important to, like, mess around a little bit, but yes. Yeah. No, I, that's a really fantastic choice. I love that. Cool. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went first for Q, so let me tell you about my money penny. Yes. I'm, but I mean, you already know Felicity Jones. Yes. And that's my pick. That's your pick. <laughs> Felicity Jones from On the Basis of Sex, which I know you're not as big a fan of. She's from Rogue One. She's in The Theory of Everything. Yeah. And she's just charming. She is. She's very, she's very charming, charming. delightful. And I can absolutely see her being someone who can kind of banter back and forth with Bond and yet still remain on her side of the desk. Yes. 
I love which that. Which I do think is important. No, it, it absolutely is. And like that's kind of what I was going for too is I want I was trying to find someone who is super charming, who can do the repartee, who is going to have chemistry with Bond but not right. have it be like super sexualized chemistry, but like cuz one of the things I do love about from Russia with love. So I like I describe them as like they can go out for drinks after work and then he can get her a cab. Yes. Exactly, and I, I think that the chemistry or, between... which would be funnier would be she orders him a cab. Exactly, yeah. She's her own woman. She can do her own thing. And I think that Sean Connery and Lois Maxwell have amazing chemistry. I don't know who that is. Money oh, Penny. no, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I think that they have the best chemistry. Second to them is Daniel Craig and Naomi Harris, who I think have yeah. amazing chemistry as well. Um, but I was, I was kind of going off some lines, and I chose Haley Atwell. Haley Atwell is... Peggy Carter from yes. the Marvel Cinematic I Universe. I looked at her. Yes. I just... For the people who don't know. Right, of course. I, I actually I, considered her for another role and was like, I can't. And I honestly considered her for Money Penny. I love Haley Atwell. Yeah. She's amazing. The only reason why I would say no to her is because she's already been Agent Carter. Mm-hmm. And anytime I see her sitting behind a desk sending someone else to do the job, I'm like, but no, she'd be better. She's so good. It's mm, a very good point. And because I loved Agent Carter. Yeah. I All of it, that show is amazing. And the one thing, I'm going to spoil Endgame right now, the one thing that really annoys me about Cap going back and getting back together with Agent Carter is that it entirely dismisses her arc in Agent Carter, where she learns to get over Cap, she meets someone new, and that person's amazing, and I love that actor as well. Yeah. And like she kind of falls for this other guy, and she's like, oh, well, she moves on. Yeah. And it dismisses all of that. Yeah. I mean, your extras up at your door, stuff's ha- stuff happens, but... yeah. And also, ultimately, it all gets undone when he leaves. What? Like, when he... Because I have spent so much time figuring out how the endgame time travel shit works. Okay. But the only way for him to be back in the end of the movie old mm-hmm. is he had to... He didn't arrive there because just by aging. Because he slower? No. He had to leave the timeline that he was in. So he went to another timeline, spent his entire life with Peggy... And then left and went back to the main timeline. And when that happens, basically that timeline gets closed off. So, uh, so like... Either way. Yeah. Also, basically every other timeline ultimately ends in the snap anyways, based off of the fact that only in, like, one out of, like, 14 million work out the right way. I've, I've, I heard you guys talk about that, but I don't necessarily agree with that for separate reasons. Okay. But my basic theory was, is that all of a sudden, like we have all these other universes and all those universes started the instant Thanos destroyed the infinity stones. The only reason we have other universes at all is because he did that because, uh, Dilla Swinton says the infinity stones are what keep there being only one timeline. Well, they are the, they are the thing that protects the timeline from being, and from their, from their being branches. As soon as he destroys them, they're branches. And that's kind of what I think allows time travel and everything else to work. Because literally the Infinity Stones were preventing it because yeah, that was their role in the It's universe. slightly more complicated than that, but that, that's a whole... Yeah, that, that, a whole that, that would be a two-hour podcast in itself. Um, so, it, okay. And by my I, understanding, it was. Yeah, exactly, it was. Uh, but, it still but didn't yes. answer it. So that's why I would say no to Haley Atwell yeah. because she's been Bond. I, I agree with you. I guess my, my one concern with Felicity Jones is she's an Oscar-winning actress. Can we get her to have... Five minutes of screen time behind a desk. Of course we can. This is the ideal remake. You're right. All right, let's do it. Felicity Jones it is. All right. Especially because we can say, well, we'll just book you for one day and here's a million dollars. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's it's, true. I mean, Money Enjoy. Penny is a very memorable character, but at the end of the day, she isn't there a whole bunch. Yeah. 
She's there to be fun, to have a little bit of banter, to kind of humanize Bond. Yes. And then we move on to the actual story. Mm-hmm. She Every time we see Money Penny, she says, save the cat. Yeah, pretty much, actually. It's like, oh, Bond's a decent guy. Look, yeah. he, he has like a nice Look at his banter with yeah. the secretary. Yes. And that's basically it. Yeah. So now, so that's all of the named characters. Let me tell you about some of the other people I have. Okay. By just like the descriptions I have for them. Okay, yeah. I have the older, affable helper man who is also foreign. Uh, okay, so Kareem Bay. His name's Kareem Bay. Okay. Um, he fits into one of the Bond tropes of the ally slash mentor. So it's usually right. the like head of whatever station he's going to. Right. Who's Which was going- the case in Casino Royale as well. Exactly. Yeah, with Mathis. Yes. He um, is an older, affable man who is from somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah. Which and was the case for both of those. Exactly. So he, he's the guy on the ground who kind of knows things. Oftentimes he's super charming. Right. So the ally mentor character. Yes. So then I've got the first smoking babe who'll totes be killed. Okay. The second smoking babe being blackmailed but falls for James. Okay. Bonus smoking babe for reasons. She will betray him. Okay. Uh, and so I, I, I describe him that way because that's... It's basically there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's you know, standard misogynistic talk. Yes. Uh, and then I've got lead evil boss man. Yes. Main enforcer. And then other person who carries out plan. Okay. And then finally I have someone to establish how ritzy Bond is. Someone to establish? Like it... someone who's there who kind of is like, oh, look at Bond being able to do these things well. Like, So who in? I that... can't think of an example uh, from any of the movies, but like in Casino Royale, it's just like a cameo, some walk-on. Bond does a thing of like, oh, look at Bond being fancy. Like Bond knows this thing about high society. Oh, okay, yeah. He has, this, he has this weird encyclopedic knowledge of all kinds of obscure shit. Yeah. Yeah, he once calls out lepidoptery. It's ridiculous. Right. It's just a weird opportunity for uh, someone famous to come in, have a one-day role, and, and like Bond is like proves himself against this person who's clearly established. Yeah. I don't think it gets used that much, but it was something that I thought of and I thought was funny. Okay. So I cast three women for the, uh, for the love interest, the Bond, the Bond woman. Yeah. And then I've got kind of like my main three villain team. Okay. Lead ba- bad guy, this incredibly competent woman, and then the, the enforcer. Okay. Uh, where would you like to start? Okay. I guess why don't we start with... Okay. So the way, the way I approach this is I more or less just gave approximations for the characters of the movie. So I have a, a Red Grant, who's like your enforcer guy. Yeah. So the, the Robert Shaw character. Um, I have uh, the ally mentor, Green Bay. Uh, I have a character to be that uh, character's lover, mm-hmm. which I have a little twist on that, which is kind of fun. I thought you might do that. Tatiana, the main Bond girl, uh, the Rosa Klebs, so the the badass woman. I don't really have a um, like a Blofeld here. We didn't actually see him, right? So I didn't cast him. I did, be, but we'll get to that when uh, we get there. Okay, and then I have because I have a pitch for that. Okay, and then I have the leader of the Gypsy Tribe. Yeah, fine. But I get I have, I have a fun twist on that. Okay. Uh, and then here's one that like I, I know you definitely won't have because this is a character that's not actually in the movie. Mm-hmm. But in the books, Bond has a Scottish housekeeper named May, who I think is actually a really interesting character to exist. And I'm yeah. kind of disappointed we've never seen her. We saw the dude in Skyfall who kind of watched the house. 
Oh, yeah. Um, good old Kincaid, who was watching the house. Yeah. So, but, like, May actually doesn't stay at Bond's, Bond's apartment, but she'll stop in in the mornings, like, make him breakfast and kind of help out around the place. Is that just a pull on the woman in Sherlock Holmes? Oh, um, I mean, I guess kind of. It's more just, yeah, just kind of like this housekeeper. But I, I wish we actually got a chance to see a bit more of Bond's personal life. And again, with this movie in particular, I think it's interesting to look at what his relationships are like with the women around him. So you have a money penny. Yeah. But I also like this idea of this kind of like older woman who has a bit of a bite to her and won't put up with his shit and will call him out on it. So I've kind of added this character of May, who's in the books, is not in the movie, because I would like to see like a little bit more time up front where we get a sense of what his relationships are like. Because one other interesting thing about From Marshall with Love is it's also the only time Bond has a recurring girlfriend. Is it the woman in the boat at the beginning? Yes. So their character's name is Sylvia Trench, uh, which was pointed out on the James Bonding podcast to either be the most innocent or the dirtiest Bond girl pun name ever. Yes. But she, he meets her in Dr. No. She's the one who actually tees him up. Like, oh, I admire your luck, mister. And that's when he chimes with Bond, James Bond. He meets her in that, and then she appears again in this. The original plan was to have her appear as the main Bond girl in Goldfinger, and that didn't pan out. But I kind of like this idea of Bond having a girlfriend back home that he actually does have some sort of affection for, but he's still off. A philandering. Philandering all over the place and doing his thing. Um, so I guess that would be like my, yeah, my initial Bond girl that would most likely die, I guess. In this case, though, she probably wouldn't. She just gets left behind. Yeah. Eh, I'm not opposed to that. It just kind of like, par- part of the problem with Bond is that like he's a serial cheater. Yes. Theoretically. I mean, theoretically, we don't, we don't know the relationship status he has with any of these women. Who knows? He might, he's clearly non-monogamous. Yeah. And even in Casino Royale, it says he says his type is married women. Yeah, he just makes a joke out of that. Um, and so I think, I, I don't know, I think there's something interesting there about, again, approaching a... Here's, here's what we can say. Yeah. If we have a girlfriend back home who knows what Bond does when he's out and is comfortable with it, especially if she says a line of, bring home a new trick for me, something like that. Mm-hmm. Something is like, in, like she knows that that's what he does yeah. and encourages it or likes it or whatever. If she's on board with that, I'm cool with it. If it's just he's going behind her back and cheating on her, I don't like it as much. Yeah, I yeah, I see more of it kind of along the that she's kind of aware of it. Or maybe they've never had – maybe their relationship status is a little bit undefined. They never had like a, a real honest conversation. But she's, when, whenever but she's he's aware. In, whenever he's in town, they get together. Yeah, but like she, one of those. she's aware of what's going on. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's more important to me. Yeah, and they're like, and that there is – you know, I think there is some genuine warmth there, but neither of them are really quite willing to make a move to make a little more serious bond yeah. because of his work, because of what he does, and her recognizing that this is – kind of a futile effort but i'm just gonna enjoy it for what it is there and so it, it kind of creates this this ambiguous relationship for him a little bit someone okay. that he has an affection for that maybe might be in the back of his mind on some level when he's on a mission i think in particular this mission where he has to go and basically fall into this like honeypot trap makes kind of interesting right because you know it's basically him which by the way he falls in the honeypot trap but it's not a trap he just Gets the honeypot. Yeah, I know. It's kind of ridiculous. Because yeah. That's, that's also the way it was written. It's like, oh, it's like, she's just there to be part of the prize. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, okay. So then let's start with, then let's start with the, with the Bond women. 
Okay. Uh, for whatever various roles, I yes. let's let's just cast. I have three. Highly, I have three as well. Highly competent, very good. So of the six we've got, let's pick three. Okay. Women who would. They're all good actresses. They'd all be very actors or actresses. It sounds like. Uh, no, all these are all women. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, In my version, if I were doing a modern Bond, Bond would be pansexual. Yeah, which Bond, I think has been implied. Uh, yeah, he had a, a little joke in Skyfall. He yeah. like, made a comment like, "What makes you think this is my first time?" Um, like that. Which I love that line. But yeah, in my mind, Bond, a modern Bond would fuck anything because the '60s Bond basically fucked anything. It just was exclusively women. Yeah, he's uh, he's the modern interpretation of Marlon Brando. Exactly. Yes. And so, so my version of Bond is straight, mm-hmm. but not every character is. Fair. We'll get to that. Um, but yes, I do have three women. So, Okay. Then uh, who's your first? Okay. So for the, the kind of girlfriend back home, Sylvia Trench. Okay. So the, the first Bond girl. All right. I have Karen Gillan. She's great. Yeah, so Karen Gillan, uh, Nebula in the Avengers movies, yep. Garden Galaxy movies, also was one of the uh, companions in Doctor Who. Fantastic, gorgeous Scottish actress. Also in Jumanji. Really good in Jumanji, She's too. great in Jumanji. Um, I have never seen her in something where I have been unhappy to see her oh, because yeah. she's always done an amazing job. She's so good. And so I, I specifically thought of her as kind of more the girlfriend character because she has that sh- sharpness, that instant awareness sort of thing. You yeah. can see her being the girl that like, you would absolutely want to hang out with and... Like, even just to socialize with, because she would be super, super fun. She's also, like, very sexy and very charismatic. Mm -hmm. But she would also be aware of what's going on and just kind of not really care that much and just take it for what it is. Yes. I don't have the girlfriend back home, but Mm -hmm. I think Karen Gillan would also be excellent casting for the the woman who's currently being blackmailed but ends up falling for James. Okay. she's trying to do something else. Yeah. And the character that I have for that is Naomi Scott from Power Rangers and Aladdin. I... Love Naomi Scott. I also I think she's great and amazing. Yeah, uh, best part of Aladdin. I assume you're right. I haven't seen it. It's actually pretty fun. She's also the best part of Power Rangers. Yes, that's also true. I think that she's someone who's currently on the rise. Yeah, and I think that that's sometimes what you look for in uh, some of these characters. Of she's going to become the next big thing. Mm-hmm. She needs to be a Bond girl because then she'll be a, a star and famous forever. Yeah. And I think that that's Naomi Scott. Karen Gillum is already going to be a star and famous forever. Yeah. I think that this is the chance for Naomi Scott to be a star and famous forever because she deserves to be. She's yeah. great. And they, they do that. I mean, pretty much across the board, most of the major – this is kind of a, a dismissive term, but we're going to use it because of what it is. Bond girls. Yes. Virtue. Most of the major Bond girls have been lesser-known actresses with a mm-hmm. couple rare exceptions. Honor Blackman, Diana Rigg. Denise Richards, Halle Berry. But for the most part, they have been up-and-coming actors, and oftentimes it's, it's worked out well for them. Yep. Ava Green, great example. Um, and so that's kind of who I have for all three of mine. Okay. But, like, they're all people who are known. Some are more famous than others, but, like, this is kind of the opportunity for them to... Like, this is... Now they're an A-lister. Yeah. And I think that Naomi Scott is just right on the edge of that, and I think that this would be something that would put her over. And so this is in the, the Tanya role, the the, the girl no. who's blackmailed. Oh, okay. The, the, uh, yes, sort of. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay, yes. Yeah. So the, the main um, Bond girl, it would be Naomi Scott. Yes. Okay. I'm all on board with that. So the, the two names that I had for that, and I, I'm actually already agreeing with you, and I think it's the way to go, but the two, and I had, two names I had was um, Natalie Emanuel, who was Missende in Game of Thrones. Oh, that, that kind of, uh, well, we threw away Jacob Anderson. 
Uh, we tossed Jacob Oh, that would have been, yeah, that would have yeah, been good. That would Yeah. I think she is a fantastic actress. Also, just one of the most beautiful women in the entire world. Seconded. Yes. Uh, and the other option I had was uh, Sophia Batella, who was Gazelle in Kingsman. She was the girl, like the henchman oh, that had the, the blade yeah. legs. She's amazing. Yeah, also I, played the mummy in the reboot and yes. also uh, played J-Law in Star Trek Beyond. She is, she is one of those actresses who also is everything. She is the only good thing in the mummy. And she has been good in every single that's thing she's heard. ever been in regardless. Yeah. And I, I like both those either, two. But that's what oh, I'm not going to bother with it. Why I like both those two, but I agree with you. I think yeah, Naomi Scott is like the perfect choice, for like the lead Bond girl. Yes. Oh, man. She'd also be a really good villain. I, I, yes. I tried to avoid everyone who'd ever touched things that were similar to Bond. So, like, I avoided a lot of Kingsman stuff, but... Ugh, yeah. Sophia's so amazing. Um, the other two that I have are one whose name you'll know, one whose name you won't. Okay. The name you'll know is Natalie Dormer. Yes. Natalie Dormer's fantastic. For those who don't remember, she's uh, in Game of Thrones. She's yeah. in Hunger Games. She's, um... Tyrell, what's, uh... Marjorie Tyrell. Thank you, yes. Uh, from the House of Flowers. Yes. I kind of put her as the beautiful woman that Bond is immediately attracted to who ends up betraying him. Okay. Because she very much has the sweet but can absolutely stab someone in the yes. back. And the other one that I have of uh, the first Bond woman who is killed. Yeah. I had an actress named uh, Kitty Lung. Kitty Leung. She's Cho Chang in Harry Potter. Oh, yeah, she's so good. She is, and she's done a bunch of other, like, little British things here yeah. and there. And I don't, like, I saw her picture, and I was like, I know she's Cho Chang. I still don't recognize her. Yeah. But she's got, like, kind of that cash of, like, she's clearly great, and she's obviously very good. Yeah. And so I also, part of the reason why I cast her, why I cast Naomi Scott, less Natalie Dormer, is because, again, I'm trying to make this less white. Yeah, diversify a little bit. So that's why I'd probably be willing to let Natalie Dormer go first before I'd let anyone else go. Yeah. So who are our six? We have uh, Katie Lung, Naomi Scott, Natalie Dormer. We have okay. Sophia. We have Karen Gillum. And we have... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting out. I'm, I'm taking off the table Natalie Manuel and Sophia Batella in favor of Naomi Scott for the main. Okay. Um, so then the... So but then so we have the main Bond girl. And then I guess... Are we going to go for... Hmm. Well, so we have... We have the main Bond, the, like the main Bond girl for the movie, which is Naomi Scott, and then we have the first one who's killed, and then the one back home. So okay, so we're not including the badass. No, that's that's under main enforcer. Okay, that, okay, she's not a Bond girl; she's a villain. Right, but I mean, there's there's yeah, of course there's overlap sometimes. The, okay, I have someone different for like highly competent. Okay, for the uh, the well, Rosa Klebb role. Okay, yes. Um, okay, so then the only other character I have, and this this could. Well, I, no, no, no. Do, who are we picking for the, for our women? Yeah, I have one more that would fit oh, 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 in this I'm list. sorry, so, excuse me. Yeah, so what I cast as the, the leader of the Gypsy, Gypsy tribe, I'm just going to go with in general is The like, Romani tribe? What? The Romani tribe. The Romani tribe? Gypsy is uh, diminutive. Oh, okay. Sorry. Thank you for pointing that out. Uh, I was going off the movie, but also that movie's from the 1960s, so I yeah. should use a more appropriate term now. Mm-hmm. Um, Which means that for our 1960s movie, they would be using the... Bad term, but we don't have to. Right, exactly. We don't have to. So for that, I and this, I think this could also slot in well with the badass woman who will probably end up betraying him. Uh-huh. Uh, so the actress's name is Indira Varma, and she was Alaria Sand in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, done, sold. Yeah. I think she is... Say her name again? So it's uh, Indira, Indira, I-N-D-I-R-A, Varma, V-A-R-M-A. 
great. She's just like, she's gorgeous. She's smart. She's menacing. I wouldn't talk to her. Highly competent. Yeah. And yes, I could absolutely see her being the leader of some other side yeah, quest yeah, that happens exactly. in the movie. Some other thing happens. Something somehow. else that happens. Yeah. We get the, a bit of information that, le- that we're, we're kind of spinning out. Uh, we're not able to find the information. Hey, here's this other thing that we do. Oh, great. We helped. And that gave us the information to get back on the main track. Yeah. Okay. So then we need to figure out the, the girlfriend back home. Yeah. So that's why my pitch is uh, Katie Leung. And yeah. who, would you, who would you put up against Cho Chang? Karen Gillan. Yeah, Karen Gillan would fit. Yeah, let's do Karen Gillan. Okay. I like that. It's amazing women in this movie. Yeah. I already want to see this. Good. Good. Okay. Uh, uh, then let's go back and do uh, the older affable man who is also foreign. Okay. So, yeah, or whatever your term for him so was. So the, the Karen Bay is the character, but the allied mentor character. Allied mentor. Okay. So I, I was also tr- definitely trying to go with a uh, person of color, trying to mix it up a little bit. As did I. I have a few options. So if, if we're... Are we, are we keeping the setting? Are we keeping Istanbul as... We can. Okay. So I was kind of basing it off that. So my... here. I'm, uh, okay, I'm going to go with two. Two major options here. Alexander Siddig. Tell me about him. Uh, he's most famous as being the doctor from Deep Space Nine. Okay. He also played the other... Like the leader of the Sand Tribe in Game of Thrones. He's got one of those like faces. I vaguely remember him. Like I would yeah. have to look him up, but I don't specifically remember. Yeah, so I mean, I was trying to find like I was trying to find someone who, like in terms of the background, would fit that area. Yeah, um, but also is really charming. I'm and not, don't worry, I got you. Yeah, I'm not super sold on it. The other option, Jordan Peele. Interesting choice. Yes, I don't know if he's old enough. I mean, he's he's a little bit older than Hiddleston. He's not super old himself. And then, yeah. um, I'm sorry, I don't think he looks old enough. Exactly. So, but I'm not like the, I, that was one category that I really couldn't get a good answer on. I couldn't all right. Really so here's the correct in. answer. Okay. Eric Avari. As soon as you look him up, you'll be like, oh yeah, he is in the Mummy. He's not the new one. He's in the Mummy. He's in Stargate. He's in Mr. Deeds. Eric. What is it? A uh, E R I C K. Mm-hmm. And then A V A R I. Oh my God, this guy! Yeah, he's in everything. I yeah. love it. I think that's a great choice. He's he's always really funny and very charismatic, which is kind of what we want. Yes. Oh, excellent choice. My God. Thank you. Yes. Well, well. Uh, and he is a man of Indian descent. Yes. Oh, perfect. Okay. Which leads me to I have four people left. Okay. And so you did not have like your, your Blofeld, your lead I, evil I don't have man. a Blofeld, yeah. So I do. Okay, who's your Blofeld? My Blofeld is Idris Elba. I love it. And it's Idris Elba because one of the things I really, really liked about Skyfall is one of the things we kind of take for granted in every other James Bond movie is that he's 007. Who are one through six? Yeah. I There's this kind of like untapped resource in James Bond of the lore of the 00, the lore of MI6. Mm-hmm. Like he, and yes, there's the whole like, is his name really James Bond? Like, assuming his name is really James Bond, but he he's 007. He's clearly not the first 00. Are there other 00s at the time? Yeah. And if 00s, as we learn, have a very short lifespan, what happens to them? Mm-hmm. And the story, I part of the reason why I liked Skyfall so much is he absolutely like someone gets left behind. They're doing the right thing, but like from the person's perspective, it's the worst. Yeah. And I like this idea of. And so it, it, this is a little tongue-in-cheek because he's someone who should have been Bond but wasn't and is bitter about it. 
and like Ooh. and that just festers and he becomes evil and now his goal is just like well i want to destroy the world yeah or or become the opposite of whatever it is that they represent so because i do like that idea that is basically the plot line of goldeneye the villain of that is 006 i did not know that there you go but nonetheless but, i still think that yeah that's good. I, I like that idea of yeah that Blofeld could be someone that was discarded by this world, by this right. game that's getting played out. And so now he's playing it on his own terms. Right. He's like, a, he's an he element of subterfuge. Unfit to play the game. So he's being, he's doing his best to play the game better than anyone else. Yeah. And as such, he's picking up the other pieces that are also being discarded, namely women. Yeah. That like, oh, well, you're being dismissed just like I was. Mm-hmm. Help me, yeah. because we can prove that we're better than they thought that than I they thought it. we were. I think it's genius. I absolutely love it. I also think he can be menacing. Oh my god, he can be so menacing, so he's scary, so, he's so sexy. <laughs> I, I didn't say that, but yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but he is. Like uh, I, I love that that clip from when he was in the office, and they just cut to. Do you remember when he? I've never watched The Office. Okay, there's a, a season where he plays like one of the major bosses at Dunder Mifflin. I'm sure he like super high up. And I'm like, obviously, everyone in the office is completely in love with him. And it, there's, yeah. a, it, there's a moment where it cuts to him doing like the direct address interview. And he's like, I'm aware of the effect that I have on women. <laughs> Amazing. He's, he's incredible. But no, I think that's fantastic for, for Blofeld. Great. So then let's talk about like kind of the main enforcer. Okay. Like so, kind of the, the big guy who gets a, a weird body part. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the Red Grant in this movie. Yes. Okay. In mine, he doesn't necessarily have to talk. Okay, all right. I'm, I'm going to have you go first because I, I have a, a little little thing with this one. Cool. So. I'm picking someone who, is in, who basically played this role in Get Smart, uh-huh. and he also basically played this role in The Longest Yard because his English ain't great, but he's huge. And it's an actor oh. named Dollop Singh. Okay. He's another actor of Indian descent, but he was a wrestler, and he's just a big guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, listeners at home, if you look him up, D-A-L-I-P... S-I-N-G-H. Yeah, he's huge. He's huge and incredibly menacing. Yeah. And like even when he talks, he talks like this. Yeah. And he just has like that the big guy voice. Mm-hmm. And I just like you need an enforcer. You need him to look scary. This guy is just as big if not bigger than Jaws. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I went with a completely different angle on this. Go on. So, again, we're talking about Spectre is this organization that's all about um, kind of operating in the shadows and subterfuge and uh, utilizing unsuspecting talent. Okay. So, for like the, the, the Red Grant in particular, this character that's always just kind of lurking in the background and kind of hiding in the shadows. Which, by the way, that scene on the train where he's following behind Bond, it's cheesy as hell, but it's amazing. It's really good, it's right? It's really yeah, good. Like, he, he, and then you cut away, and then all of a sudden he's on the other side, and you're like, I, what the hell? Yeah. He's great. Because he, he's, you know, he's just always kind of looking around the background. He's this, this constant menacing presence. So I wanted someone who you feel like could kind of disappear in a crowd a little bit. People wouldn't really suspect that much, um, but actually can have a bit of that, like, gleam in their eye mm-hmm. and it was a totally skew on this one but i went with elizabeth the bicky i don't know who that is so she was the the friend in the great gatsby the girl in the great gatsby who's not what's her bucket the horrible I person saw, but i don't remember uh she played the villain in um the man from uncle i don't know if you ever saw that i did not but go on she is in did widows you enjoy the man from uncle i did actually okay. it's not great but there's some fun stuff in there uh cool. she's in widows 
She's a super skinny Can blonde. Can I see a picture of her? Yes. She also, like I said, I normally she, have my laptop here. She also plays uh, the head of the really pompous gold alien race in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Oh, yeah. She's great. So, cause I, I, and then she also plays like, like she just loses her mind in that movie. Yeah, exactly. Like she goes all insane. But I, I like the idea of her. Just but I don't kind know what she looks at, like without gold floating paint. in the background. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, again, it's a very different take and you, on. And it. you have I. That's my main enforcer, not my like yes. competent. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Is, so this is not the Rosa Club. This is the Red Grant. So great. Then that sounds good to me. Yeah. Say I, your name again. Elizabeth Debicki. D e b i c k i. Um. I just like the idea of her being really good at what she does and actually being a genuine serious threat and like a really effective combatant, but no one takes her seriously because it's the 1960s. And I was like, it's just some woman. What is she going to do? Mm-hmm. She will kick the shit out of you. Good. Love it. Great. Mm-hmm. Then that brings me to kind of the, 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 the genius mastermind person who carry out a plan. That yes. Sort of thing, or has the plan. Yes. The highly competent woman that, only an evil genius would recognize the, mm-hmm. the capability of and who in, do you, who, at this time. Who do you have? You are not going to know this woman, uh, but her, it is an actress named Lenora uh, Crishlow. So Lenora, L-E-N-O-R-A. Okay, looking her up. And then Crishlow, C-R-I-C-H-L-O-W. Ah, okay, here we go, right up at the top. She was in Deception. She was in Flaked. She was in the very short-lived A to Z. Oh, okay, yeah, I don't think I know her. I... I picked someone more unknown for this role because, well, I, I kind of liked the look, but also yeah. she is both female and a person of color. Very good so point. doubly dismissed. Yes. I like that a lot. I don't know. I just think she can play someone who's highly competent. Yeah. I like it. I had gone with Gillian Anderson. Remind me? Oh, wait. Scully from the X-Files. Oh, interesting. And now- You went older than I did. Yes, I did. Yeah, I was kind of going for kind of like Rosa Club's a little bit older. I went for that angle. I mean, she also is in um, what, Sex Education on Netflix. I think that's her, her current role. Um, Which is supposed to be very good. Supposed to be very good, yeah. So my thinking there was, again, like older woman, um, again, has that sort of just like really obvious intellect all the time when she walks into a room. Um, and, and one of the things that I like about From Russia With Love, and they kind of hint at it, but they don't really play into it too much is that it's heavily implied in this movie that Rosa Klebb is a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And so I like the idea. Is it? I mean, I guess that's the read I've had on it. And I, I, I can see that. I didn't necessarily yeah, and get I know that I've, like, I've, I've seen other people make reference to that too. Like her kind of like leering obsession with, um, the reason with why Tanya. she hates the beautiful woman is because like, she's not allowed to. Yeah. That okay. there's like this kind of repressed sexuality. Also, that's a classic thing with Fleming that, douchebag that he was but i like the idea of that character being a lesbian but maybe one who's a little bit more confident in herself and and rather than being kind of portrayed as i mean it's a little mean but kind of as like older kind of haggish character mm-hmm. to be someone who is like older but like so, very obviously well, let's very take sexy. the other way because the most dismissed person is not only a woman but an older woman yeah I like that idea. Mm-hmm. Someone who literally has been dismissed her whole life and got twisted and bitter, yeah, but found of oh no, I see, I see your potential. Yeah, I mean, it helps with Jillian Anderson that she is stunning, of course, stunningly beautiful. But I just was intrigued by that idea of um, I like that idea. Yeah, of her being this this sort of mastermind behind the whole thing. And then well, she, I bet she can kick a shoe real good. I bet she can. <laughs> uh, I mean, take off the shoe and throw it. I know, but who throws a shoe? Honestly. <laughs> Uh, apparently, um, 
Hispanic grandmothers. That yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So the other two roles that I have are that that older Scottish maid, right? Okay. Um, that I may have made reference to before, and although this actress isn't Scottish, I think I like the idea of Bond having this sort of like kind of motherly presence in the room, and I went for the great Olivia Coleman. Tell me about Olivia Coleman. She just won an Oscar for The Favorite. Oh yeah, she's amazing. I yeah. love and had her. like the greatest acceptance speech ever. I fucking yeah, love her. I, she's. Yeah. So she's the one who kind of like maybe points out to Bond that, you know, okay, it's great that you're off having fun with Sylvia Trench, but, you know, maybe actually consider the fact that she's a real person and has a heart sort Mm -hmm. of thing. Like, she's that one person that he would not dismiss out for calling him on a shit, but also he's not going to maybe totally listen to her. Yeah. Makes sense. So I have that. Every once in a while, something gets through. Exactly. That. And then the only other character I have is in the movie, we meet uh, Karen Bay, the ally mentor, has a girlfriend. Okay. So I have it as a boyfriend. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and so the actor I went for is Saeed Tagmawi, who was Samir in Wonder Woman. So the the actor in Wonder Woman, the super, super charming guy who um, is really close friends with Chris Pine, with Steve Trevor. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so you would have uh, Saeed Tagmawi dating Eric Avari? Yes. All right. It's, it's an age gap. It's a bit of an age gap, but it's not unprecedented especially in the gay community but i just i liked that idea of um the ally mentor character also being a bit of an outsider like he's part of the boys club but he's still a little bit on the outside of it and there's an aspect of his life that kind of goes against the establishment even though he's part of it cool. so it. he's in this weird kind of morally compromised space fantastic i got no problems with that whatsoever yes her character in the movie uh, lots of problems with it yeah, exactly. Oh, I have to go have sex with this beautiful woman. Oh, jeez. I, I know. Like, the gender, the gender politics well, of the movie. Well, the bomb went off and she got scared and ran home. Yeah, it's the gender politics of this movie. is horrible. I feel like we've done a good job of resolving that, yes. though. So. Here's hoping. Yes. Uh, but that leads us to our writer and our director. Or do you have a writer-director? I do. All right. I absolutely so then, do. Let me tell you about my writer. Please. You tell me about your writer-director, and All then right. uh, we'll go with my director, who we will probably throw away. Okay. My writer is Drew Goddard. It's funny you should say that. Is it? He was on my list. Yeah. And I would still very much seriously consider him. Now, I'm curious, what movie of his in particular really drew you to him? None. I was, I was drawn to him because of the Daredevil TV show. Oh, okay. Good call. I was drawn to it because of... The subterfuge of that, but yeah. also the the style of action. Yeah. Because I feel like it's kind of the low-tech, highly choreographed mm-hmm. action, and to get something like that written is very difficult. Yeah. And Drew Goddard, obviously, has had an amazing career. Yeah. So Look it up. It's He, his, he wrote The Martian. Uh, <laughs> the Martian. Margin. The Martian Martian. No, he wrote The Martian. I can't believe uh, it's not Maz. Did you see... Bad Times, the El Royale? No. It's really, really good. I know. It's not really my genre, but okay. I know. Um, but he wrote and directed that, and that's one of the reasons I was considering him is because it is a period piece, but it yes. has this 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 tension and this mystery mm-hmm. to it, and I thought that would be a good fit. And he's really good at writing something boots on the ground. Yeah. And that's why I thought he would be a good writer. Okay. My rule when I was doing this was I could either have... I could have an American writer or I could have an American director. I couldn't have both. Okay. So I had an American writer... And then I had a British director. Okay. Finding a British action director was really, really difficult. But mm-hmm. tell me about who you had for your writer slash director. Okay. So, because I, I have a writer and director. They're, they're different. Oh, you had, I'm sorry. You had them different. Yes. I'm sorry. I thought yeah. you said you had a writer director. No, no. So I, um, 
you know, and with Bond, especially contemporary Bond films, oftentimes there are multiple writers on it. So there are two guys, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who have Mm -hmm. written every Bond movie since The World Is Not Enough. So they've done the last six films. We don't now that six films ain't bad. Well, that's exactly it. Like that of those six movies, like two of them are masterpieces. Yep. Some of them are terrible, and some are kind of in the middle. So we've never really figured out like are they actually really good at this or not. Mm -hmm. But you know, their best movies have other writers on them. So which uh, implies that. It's not them. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, do I keep them or not? They're pretty well established. But I was trying to figure out who else, who could be a good genre writer. Okay. So I approached it if I actually have two people. You have a team? or you, I, I have a team. So you paper teamed them? Exactly. So I, they, they get a, uh, they get a, and not an ampersand on Got this. it. All right. Um, so it would be, the genre writer I had was Tony Gilroy. Tell me about Tony Gilroy. So Tony Gilroy wrote a whole bunch of, he wrote all of the Bourne movies. Okay. He also wrote, along with Chris Weitz, he wrote Rogue One, which I think his, is one of the best structured action movies I've seen in a really long time. Star Wars Rogue One. I'm not as big a fan of, I enjoyed Rogue One, I'm not as big a fan of it as you are, but mm-hmm. okay. Um, so that was my genre guy, and then this is a little bit cheating because this is already happening, but I feel like this script needed some female perspective. It needs a bit of punch-up, and so I chose the person who's doing that now, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge would be, like, the punch-up writer. Tell me about Phoebe Throwing, Waller-Bridge. Uh, her big show right now is Fleabag. Ah, got it, yeah. So, two seasons uh, in America. It's on Amazon. She also stars in it. She also was the robot L3 in Solo, yeah. um, and she is currently doing a punch-up pass on Bond 25. So, she is the first credited female screenwriter ever on a Bond film. I mean... I'm perfectly happy just making it exclusively her. I, but I, so here's the reason I don't think that works is I still think, and obviously writers have this great amount of diversity to them, but I, I do feel like Bond kind of has a good way of doing it, which is like you have your established genre guys who understand like how the mechanics, of these sort of things work. And then you bring in someone to give it spark and personality and a punch of the dialogue and stuff. So I feel like the best way to go would actually be to do Drew Goddard with a pass by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I agree with that. All right, and then who's your director? So the obvious choice is Matthew Vaughn, but I didn't want to do that Mm -hmm. because I tried to avoid everyone who was involved with uh, the Kingsman movies. Yeah. Because I love the first one. Not as big a fan of the second one. Yeah, agreed. Um, But I feel like by making Kingsman, you kind of said everything you wanted to say about James Bond Mm -hmm. because literally that's what it is. Yeah. So I went with someone who's another British action director. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not a perfect fit because this guy's also hit and miss, mm-hmm. but I kind of feel like he he's certainly someone who I'm sure grew up with these movies and so would be able to give them the care and attention that they deserve because it's something that he likes and cares about. Yeah. And so that's why I went with Guy Ritchie because he did Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Okay. He also did The Man from U.N.C.L.E., which yeah. is why I specifically said, so do you like The Man from U.N.C.L.E.? And you said, yeah. So I, I, I had so fun with it. Guy Ritchie it is. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think that's definitely an interesting choice. Um, I like him, mm-hmm. and I thought I thought Aladdin was actually pretty good. So my criteria going into this was, given that it's a Bond film, it's in the sixties, but there's this really big emphasis on female presence through the whole thing. You know, we've, we've made more of the characters female. We've given them more meat to go on. I really want to see a female director. I I absolutely think that there are a number of female directors out there who'd be great at Bond. Great. So my two criteria was they had to be female. And had to be kind of like Bond himself, British adjacent in some capacity. Sure, okay. 
So I had two candidates, and I think ultimately my choice here is going to be Sam Taylor Johnson. Tell me about Sam Taylor Johnson. So Amazing name. Her, she's married to Aaron Taylor Johnson, who was kick-ass. Less good name. Yes. Uh, he was a Quicksilver in um, Age of Ultron. But I she, did not see that coming. She, yeah, yeah. Ah, good fall. She did direct... Oh my God, how am I blanking on this? She did Nowhere Boy... Which was a movie about John Lennon. Um, oh my God, what else has she done? But the the Look one the one thing that really pulled me in for her is because you know, the reality is, especially recently, they have been going for directors who aren't necessarily known for their action. Like obviously, Sam Mendes had done American Beauty. He had done Road to Perdition, which is a bit of action in it. But he's more of a a theatrical, dramatic director. Um, you know, same with Carrie uh, Fukunaga. I mean, there's action elements in. True Detective, which is like his most famous thing, but like sure. that's not what he's known for. But really, they they basically like okay, who's someone we can bring in that has a really good perspective on it, who can handle the drama and handle the characters, and they have some of the best action crew around them. They have great second unit directors, they have great choreographers. You know, kind of like Marvel does a similar thing too, where it's like, oh, do we like your stuff? Great, we'll bring you in because of the talent you've shown, and then the bigger budget elements. We have the people around you that really know how to do this stuff well. And so I figured, like, okay, so the same thing should apply to a female director, too. And the other thing that kind of sold me on her is she had actually technically directed something for James Bond before. Oh, interesting. So there was a short released in 2011. And as I'm looking up her credits here, I'll get the exact name for you. But it's called James Bond Supports International Women's Day. (laughs) Okay. From 2011. You may have seen this, because when I rewatched it, I remembered it. So... But it's basically... I'm sure as soon as I watch it, I will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw this. Yeah, so it's basically Daniel Craig is dressed up as James Bond, and then uh, Judy Dench as M is doing a voiceover. And she's like, oh, like, well, hello, 007. Like, you know, you and I would be considered, like, equals, which is actually not true, because M is superior. superior. But it's all about, you know, establishing, like, oh, like, we should be treated as equals. But then she lists this whole range of things where men and women aren't actually equal in all these capacities. They're not treated equally. Um, you know, legally, practically, socially, financially, all these other sort of things. And so as she's kind of going through these things, Jana Craig walks off stage, you know, she's like, oh, are we actually equals? And he comes back on and he's, I don't want to say in drag because that implies a certain kind of tone, but he is wearing a dress. He's got a wig. He's in makeup. You know, he's made up. He looks like a woman. He's dressed as a woman. It's kind of a weird idea. I'm not necessarily saying that it's super successful in what it's trying to do. But I love the idea that... But it is attempting to make a statement. It's attempting to make a statement. And also, I love the idea that, you know, this is Daniel Craig, this is James Bond, like, the epitome of masculinity in pop culture. And, you know, he did this. He recognized the value and the importance of it. And so she already has a connection to the franchise. So that was my pick. Um, And then so some of the other stuff she had done... A Million Little Pieces movie coming out. She did Fifty Shades of Grey. That was the big movie that I had forgotten that she had done. Nowhere Boy... Oh, she also uh, directed the Elton John musical, I Want Love. <laughs> okay. Or the, not the musical, but the I the mean, music I'm perfectly video. happy to go with her. Yeah, I, I think she could do it. Okay, great. Say her name again. Sam Taylor Johnson. All right, cool. Then let me take you through. <gasps> so excited. Okay, then before we do that, what's your name for the movie? Is it From Russia oh, With Love? I, I, I don't think so, because Bond's never done a full-on remake. They've, like, you know, pulled stuff again. Oh, what do you... Mm, James Bond, dead and loving it? (laughs) You know, the funny thing is, I should just have, like, a Bond title right to pull out of my ass at any given moment. Well, theoretically, you've read all the books, so what's a book title that hasn't been used? Okay, there's... 
Not a lot left. Pretty much they've all been used in some capacity. Um, one that I always... Okay, there's a couple that we could use. So one that I always really liked, but it would be a weird title, is the Hildebrand Rarity. I know, it's a very weird title. The The idea... It is one of the short stories that Fleming wrote and Bond's basically on vacation in the Seychelles with this guy Milton Crest, who actually does appear as a character in one of the Bond films. But he is this... Billionaire, he's got a fuckload of money, obviously, and he's out. Bond somehow ends up this guy's yacht, and the whole idea is that he is abusive to his girlfriend, okay. Milton Crest, not Bond, obviously, and he beats her with a dried out manta ray tail, so it like kind of stings her. Jesus. And again, another element that's brought into one of the Bond films at one point. But, you know, basically what happens is over the course of a night, he is killed, like the, the manta ray barb thing like he gets drunk and it's basically shoved into his mouth and it kills him and clearly the girlfriend did it but bond basically just like lets it go because she had this horrible life and yeah. so it's like kind of like a little bit of a locked room murder history interesting idea but they never done anything yet. so the hildebrand rarity could be an option one of my favorite bond books it was not written by ian fleming it was written by jeffrey deaver and it's kind of the casino royale film version of the books where it's a modern reboot of bond as a character um, it's called Carte Blanche. I like that better. It's a great title. It has a very specific story, and if you use that story, you would kind of have to bring in the elements. Oh, if you use that title, you have to bring in the elements of the story. Of the book, yeah. Okay. Um, um, but, I mean, we could just... Fuck it. I mean, it's like the... Again, it's an ideal remake. We're doing whatever we want with yeah, it. Yeah, so. but I mean, like, theoretically, we could name it whatever we want as well. So I'm just trying to think of something that... Sounds super bondy. Sounds super bondy, but also like is a little bit of the pun, like Goldfinger. Yeah. But it's also like live another day, die another day, something, yeah. whatever. Um, see you again tomorrow. We can call it Istanbul, not Constantinople. I mean, I love that, but no. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking more like, I would just call it James Bond on the other side. Oh, I like that on the other side. <laughs> that would have been a good idea for me to think about that going into yeah, this. It just occurred to me now. I know, yeah. It's one of those things where I'm like, if I'd mentioned it ahead of time, that would have been really interesting for us to come up with yeah. just like for fun James Bond titles. It's like Edge of the World is not on the world. Like It's not yeah. the Edge of the World, though. Um, I don't think there's any other bonding out like or any other things are in there like golden eye is named after ian fleming's estate right um the world is not enough is the family motto i mean it could also just be something like james bond on the precipice oh yeah something like that but i mean like i like kind of the single words like skyfall casino royale is obviously very good but like he's literally in a casino in a battle royale yeah so casino royale how do you feel about the just the title in general quantum of solace like does that work for you did you find it weird i like the name Mm -hmm. it means nothing well so again we're gonna i'm gonna give a little bit of bond background here but the name comes from a story quantum of solace and in it bond is having a conversation with this guy down in jamaica and so this guy is telling the story of a local British government employee who worked in Jamaica mm-hmm. who fell in love and married a, an air hostess who... Oh, no. Here's the title. Mm. James Bond. Shaken. <laughs> I like it. Let's go with it. <laughs> Sorry. He fell in love with an, uh, an air hostess. Okay. But anyways, she basically just married him for his, his status. Uh-huh. And, you know, so she just uses him to go to all the country clubs, engages all the, you know, the British expats are living in Jamaica and is constantly cheating on him. And over the course, he just like grows to like hate her more and more and more. And so what quantum of solace refers to is it's, it means quantity of comfort. Essentially, it means how much 
like love and empathy do you hold for a person? And so by, you know, the whole point of the story the guy's telling is that by the end of this relationship, this, this schmo, this British expat, no longer had any quantum of solace for his wife. You know, it ends a divorce and he hates her and they both, their lives are both kind of miserable afterwards. And so the, the thematic correlation to that with the film Quantum of Solace is that Bond doesn't know how to feel about Vesper because he loved her, but she betrayed him. Right. And so the, it's basically a matter of like what sort of love and empathy does he still have? What sort of quantum of solace, capacity of comfort does he still hold for this person? That title would have worked if they hadn't been lazy and just named the evil organization Quantum. It would have worked if, like, for example, in the two, when he and Mathis are on the flight, if Mathis gave an abbreviated version of that same story and he explains what the idea means. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of like name checking the movie and the, the, the title in the movie, but at least it would have given some context. But I'm just I mean, curious. There's a lot of things that would kind of work. I mean, you could do James Bond beyond capacity, but that just sounds like an overfull theater. But like, yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of the single word. I, I honestly kind of like the idea of shaking because it's a set up to what, where James Bond came from, but it's also like, we're shaking things up because it's not the world that we're used to. Yeah, it's it's back in the 60s again, you know. So, um... Anyway, James Bond, <laughs> Shaken. Mm-hmm. Starring James Bond is played by Tom Hiddleston. M will be Charles Dance. Q will be Franz Drame. Money Penny is Felicity Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, the older affable helper man, who's also foreign. <laughs> the ally slash mentor. Is, you're going to have to keep doing that. Yes, it's uh, fine. Eric Avari. Mm-hmm. James is woman that he sees whenever he's in town. Yeah, his, his um, I don't know, his his, his paramour, his yes. his fling, his, is, his girl Friday. Is Karen Gillum. Yes. The quote-unquote Bond girl for the movie, uh, who is being blackmailed to do something else, but ends up falling for James. And then walking away from him, because he's a piece of shit. Correct. Mm-hmm. Is Naomi Scott, the additional attractive woman in the movie, who is likely going to be killed in Dira Varma. Mm-hmm. And then our lead evil boss man, Blofeld, is Idris Elba. Our main enforcer is Elizabeth Debicki. 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 Yes. The, uh, the master of the plan. Yes, the Rosa Kleb. Is Gillian Anderson. Mm-hmm. The old maid character, the uh, Bond's housekeeper. Yeah. Is Olivia Coleman. And then the boyfriend to... Eric Avari is Saeed Tikmani. Mm-hmm. All of this will be written by Drew Goddard with a pass by Phoebe, Phoebe Waller Bridge, and then it will be directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. I'd watch the shit out of that movie. That is James Bond. Shaken. Shaken. It's also impossible to not say it with a Sean Connery. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm okay with it. Yeah. It's fun. It's the only way to refer to the movie in any capacity. Yeah, it's a tongue in cheek name. James I Bond like in Shaken. Shaken. I love it. I'm so, so yeah, I'm on board for it. That's our movie. It's fantastic. Ta-da. That's incredible. James Bond 26. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the bold new direction we're taking it. 26, after. the new one. Yes, after there Daniel are 26 Craig. ways I said hello to your mother last night. <laughs> uh, so Chris, mm-hmm. tell us about what you've got going on. What would you like to plug? Uh, I mean, I'll just I'll plug my uh, my two podcasts. So I mentioned them at the top of the show, but uh, Tim Talk with two M's. We can be found on iTunes uh, and Spotify, and uh, if you want to find us on social media, it's Tim Talk Pod at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail. I have said that so many times. I know it's great. Uh, my other podcast is called Gay at Four. It's the one where I learned how to be a better gay. 
And that is also up on iTunes. And you can find that at GateForwardPod on Facebook and Twitter and just at GateForward on Instagram. Cool. And then uh, I am personally at Lordofer, L-O-R-D-O-P-H-E-R. It's a mashup of my first and last names on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, if you go check it out, there will be some photos of me from Galaxy's Edge, Star Wars oh, Galaxy's nice. Edge at Disneyland. I made a, a few pilgrimages out there the last couple of weeks. And it's a fucking amazing place, and I recommend everyone go see it. So Good. Yes. Uh, if you want to follow me, I am at Sam Gash, S-A-M-G-A-S-C-H on Twitter. If you want to follow the podcast, it is Ideal Remake on Twitter and Instagram, or join us on Facebook at Ideal Remake Podcast or Ideal Remake. If you've got the time this week and the inclination, we'd love it if you go online and left us a five-star rating and let us know what you think. Or... Hey, you know what? If you would take the time to tell one friend or one person in your life about this podcast, well, gosh, I would really appreciate it. So, yeah, that's it. We've we've remade James Bond. Chris, it. let's end. What is your favorite James Bond quote? Mm, I, it's I don't even know where to begin. I know it's it's so it's so damn hard. What? Why don't we instead go with one of the most memorable quotes possible? Please. This never happened to the other fella. <laughs>